yeah, you guessed it. This is Jim. And uh, first things first, I won't go on too long here because I do say some words in the episode proper. But uh, you all know how much this podcast means to me. It was started uh, back in 2011 with my good friend in his basement. And, well, okay, we're back. And it's an honor to return along with my original co-host and co-founder, Patrick Rapole. We'll see if we can keep this going. We have busy lives. Um, I'm back in graduate school for library science. Uh, I've got other endeavors. And uh, well, Patrick works very hard at a coffee shop. There's a lot going on in our lives. Uh, we're trying to keep up with everything. Oh my gosh, my radiator's going crazy. Um, so, it, it, you know, if we continue to be supported, and I, I, I don't doubt that we will, I, I foresee this continuing for as long as we can. And I'm also very honored to be taking over for two great hosts that have done a marvelous job these past three years. And of course I'm talking about Brad and Al and, uh, you know, give them props for all their hard work including doing some directors that we probably wouldn't have done nearly as well, or (laughs) at least they've done an incredibly thorough job when you think of what they've done with their, uh, Bergman extravaganza. So as far as Directors Club, it's 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 back in the way it used to be. There will be a Patreon, uh, Twitter, Facebook, website, all remains the same. So pull up a chair, watch a few movies each week, and join us for now the third act of Directors Club, which is officially a monthly show brought to you by the Now Playing Network. The old format is back, including the What We Watch segment, the parody songs, the top three lists at the end, and uh, more and more and more. So stay subscribed indefinitely. Looking forward to hearing from all of you. And now on to episode 173 with Patrick, Sergio, and me. Gentlemen and those who do not believe in a gender binary, we are back. This is Jim and Patrick. I can't believe it. We are back. Yeah, here this, I am. Th- you're here. I'm here. It's been almost forty days since we <laughs> recorded. About, so. Well, that, that was the uh, yeah, that was the uh, best of 2019 yeah, episode. Not such a huge gap, but uh, before that, yeah, it's been quite a bit since we uh, hosted this show. Indeed. Uh, let's let's be sure to start out by saying that we want to thank Brad and Al for their tremendous hard work over the course of three years mm-hmm. and about fifty episodes. You know, we can't. I I told Patrick this once I sent the email. We can't make any promises that this is going to last indefinitely, right? But thanks to the listeners, and just because we obviously still love movies, we're going to come back as a monthly show for a while and see how it goes. Uh, you know, because Director's Club has always kind of been about me conveying, you know, just how much I love movies, but it's also an educational experience. It's a learning experience. You know, it's 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 a conversational film school, mm-hmm. really. And I hope people still enjoy listening to it and us, because <laughs> we're here. And, 
you know, at the same time, we're also humans with busy lives. So if we slip up or, you know, choose to conclude the show down the road, uh, I'm very happy with the work we've done and sincerely grateful to Brad now for, for what they've done as hosts. Um, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's Brad and Al, uh, they definitely made their own mark yes. on uh, this show. And they, they had their own way and their own approach that, you know, fit the way that they saw film and the way they enjoyed talking about film. And that was really cool to have that uh, change in difference. And I think we're going to go, you know, we have our own way as well. So we're kind of going back to an old school format. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let's introduce our guest, Jim. We have a wonderful guest who uh, was on for a couple of episodes in the past, including, uh, I believe, Michael Curtiz, Nicholas Ray, uh, Vincent Minnelli, I believe, as well. That's right. It's yeah. Sandy Donnan. Oh, yeah. Wow. We're so glad that uh, Sergio Mims is back. He's a frequent guest on the Movie Madness podcast, co-founder and co-programmer of the Black Harvest Film Festival, host of the Bad Mother Film Show at WHPK, and as I like to say, a walking Wikipedia of film knowledge. Welcome back, Sergio. Yeah, well, as long as there are old movies and old film directors, I'm here. And we're grateful for that. I don't think we're going to run out of those anytime soon. So we look forward because to I was there. As well. yeah, you were still- there. Yeah. What was Anthony Mann real like, like in real life, Sergio, when you were hanging out with him? He was a swell guy and a hell of a partier. Okay, but, excellent. Uh, but, but, you know, that's a great introduction to briefly go into his background because he had a very unusual upbringing, which is reflected in his movie. Since his movies tend to cover tortured heroes, psychologically tortured heroes, dysfunctional families, mm-hmm. and twisted relationships. He's a very interesting director because he is someone who, uh, you even though he was considered a, you know, a gun for hire and he never really, throughout his career, had... You know, he was never a high-profile uh, name director uh, until he was sort of rediscovered. You know, years later, he uh, he definitely had his own style and his own stamp, and he made a very specific you know kind of movie over and over again. The way that if you are talking about auteurs, uh, which is you know that is uh, he would definitely rank up there. But uh, like I said, this is going to be kind of an old school episode. So before we even go into Anthony Mann, we're going to go to our classic older segment of just talking about what we watched this week. Wow! With a friend like Harry, and I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, Mr. Brooks, Mr. Remend, and I'm not there, this is the end. Blue Valentine in the Mouth of Madness, The Watchmen, Doctor Sleep. What movies did we watch this week? DVD, Hulu, streaming, or Netflix? Hope you like the sound of our voices. What movies did we watch this week? Her rebel without a cause. Inner space, the Wizard of Oz. The lighthouse about Schmidt and Cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Repo Man or Field of Dreams. Game Night Drive Jaws 3D. Tombstone, Young Guns, Fight Club, Heat, Jason, and the Argonauts. Matinee, Say Anything, City of Angels, Rocky Three, The Smurfs, and Speed. Blue Thunder, Like Water for Chocolate, The Shining, The Fisher King. What movies did we watch this week? DVD, Hulu, streaming, or Netflix? Hope you like the sound of our voices. What movies did we watch this week? 
So like we used to do before, for those who didn't listen to shows we did 17 years ago or whenever, <laughs> um, we're just going to sort of talk about a non-Anthony Mann film that we've seen recently. Uh, it's a monthly show, but we still always call it what we watched this week anyway. Oh yeah, that's right. It is a monthly show and we're still calling it that, but that's okay. I don't, what we watched this month doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. I don't, I think, I think fit into our songs I can't, as easily. Did we ever, was it ever a weekly show? It was bi-weekly. We tried right. bi-weekly. Yeah, and then I think, well, we did it when we did it. I think. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. At any rate, we like to start with a guest. Uh, Sergio, we've we've heard from you that you've been watching a lot of <laughs> movies lately uh, as the uh, you know co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival and stuff like that. You, I'm sure you have uh, tons of different stuff to talk about. What's a movie that you've seen recently uh, that you'd be interested in talking about? Uh, I haven't been watching lately a bunch of Kirk Douglas movies. Oh, sure. Sure. And uh, the three I watched were uh, Ace in a Hole. Yeah. Um, the Vikings. Oh, The Vikings. Interesting. Okay. And a film I watched last night, which I saw for the first time. I've always heard about this picture. It will probably shock people. It's called The Light at the Edge of the World. Ooh, I, know, I haven't heard it's, of that it's one. Been recently released by Kino. Uh, it was an independently made movie released in 1971 with Kirk Douglas and Yul Brenner. It's based on a Jules Verne novel. But I will tell you right now, throw out any idea you have of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, also with <laughs> Kirk Douglas. This is not a family-friendly movie. It's really shockingly violent and brutal. And um, it's sort of like a proto-diehard. It's it tells the story of a lighthouse keeper played by uh, Kirk Douglas and a bunch of pirates um, led by Yul Brenner have designs to take over the light ship and then cut off the light and create a fake lighthouse, which would bring ships to the coast, have caused them to wreck, and then they'll loot the ship and then kill all the survivors. Wow. And Kirk Douglas is this one-man band who has to fight off the pirates. Um, and like I said, it is an incredibly violent movie where we see um, a man literally being his skin ripped off his body. Whoa. Uh, believe it or not, a woman being gang raped. Um, a monkey being split open. This is rough stuff. And this was probably as a Family movie for kids. What was that? What was it? PG one. It was rated GP back then. <laughs> uh, but it's a fascinating movie. And Kirk Douglas, who at this time when he made his movie, made his film was in his early fifties. Look, Tom Cruise got nothing on Kirk Douglas. He does all his own stunts. Right. And the entire film was shot on the uh, southernmost coast of Spain in this rocky area with these jagged rocks. He runs up and down these rocks. There's one scene where the pirates tie him by one foot and pull him up to the top of the lighthouse. And then just use him like a, a, a yo-yo. Switch and pull him up and down. It's really him. He's really pulling off these stunts. Uh, he jumps off a cliff, uh, outruns a horse. It's amazing. At the end of this film, even though he is the victor, um, there's, there is... is if the film was bleak, there's no true sense of joy or jubilation at the end of this movie. Maybe because he's the only guy left alive. And the sacrifices that he made and the pain that he went through 
in order to preserve this lighthouse. It's a really fascinating movie. Yeah, it sounds like an uh, early seventies ending to me. I've never, <laughs> I mean, I've heard of this film. Um, it had been available overseas on in DVD, but now it's been released on Blu-ray. And uh, I actually contacted the uh, the two guys who did the commentary for the movie, mm. who I've really mm. gone really know, uh, Howard Berger and Nathaniel Thompson. And we just communicated over this film because I was just amazed by this picture. Um, as I said before, not for family. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. Um, no, it's not. But is, once is, again, Kirk Douglas gave 110%. Is there, like, because it is based on a Jules Verne work, is, is yes, there is. any kind of fantastic element to it? Is there any kind of no, element of no, fantasy? There There's no Captain Nemo. There's no, uh, <laughs> you know, a mysterious island. It's a straight-up action-adventure survival movie. Actually, the, the novel was published after Jules Verne had passed away, a couple of years after Jules Verne passed away. Hmm. So um, he may have made some changes if he had still lived, put some more fantastical elements in it. But this, it's a really straight, hardcore action-adventure film. What is, okay, so I'm a little curious about uh, Kirk Douglas's. I you know most of what I know about Kirk Douglas's career is his sort of career in the 50s uh, through sort of the early 60s. What uh, I know he was in you know the uh, he was in the Fury with uh, the the Brian De Palma movie. Oh right, yeah. But yeah. like, but like, what other what was his career in the 70s like? Did he sort of retire for a while, or did he kind of oh, make no, movies no. like he this? He kept making movies till the end, near to the very end. He kept working. Mm-hmm. Um, by the 70s, he wasn't, say, the box, big box office guy that he had been in the 60s or 50s, but he still kept working, and he was still very much in the man. And um, he did all sort of odd projects, you know, in the 70s. You know, a lot of actors who became names in the 40s and 50s, by the 70s, it was a new age. It was mm-hmm. a new world. There were all kinds of new actors coming along, like Robert De Niro, like Al Pacino. So they had to adapt, and they had to find different sort of roles to play. Uh, I know this is not um, uh, a Kirk Douglas film, but you look at a film like uh, Uzana's Race, Robert Alder's film starring uh, Burt Lancaster. Uh, it's a, When you see this movie, it's an older Burt Lancaster is a more cynical, wiser Burt Lancaster. He's not the guy he was in the 1940s because, of course, he's not the guy he was in the 1940s. Um, so, same thing with Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas um, well, also was a different kind of actor. Even in the 1970s, he still tried to, when you look at The Fury, he still does some stunts in that movie, and he was close to 60. Yeah. When he made that picture, I mean, like climbing out of windows, of, you know, uh, across the L tracks <laughs> in the movie. You know, he still wanted to show that I still got it, you know. And his name still brought an audience, and his name still had it would add a film a certain cachet. Yeah, what's funny is that uh, my first exposure to both Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas was in. Uh, this really ridiculous crime comedy called Tough Guys. Yeah, right. From from nineteen eighty six, and I believe like Dana Carvey's in that as well. Um, and it's 
it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and it just like turns them into caricatures. And obviously they get out of prison and they, it's almost like they're fish out of water living in the eighties, but also coming to terms with their age. It's almost like a comical Irishman. <laughs> Cause they're like trying to figure out like, well, who, who should we be, you know, at, at this point in time in our lives? And can we, go back to the life of crime that we once did. But it's just funny to think like, yeah, that was my first introduction to these incredible actors. Uh, well, very, very similarly to like my first introduction to, to De Niro was Midnight Run. I automatically thought, well, these guys are hilarious, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's, my it's, very first introduction to Kirk Douglas was the very first movie I ever saw in my life. Oh, wow. And well, that was when I was, oh, maybe three years old. Uh, my father took me to a second-run theater. You know, back at that time, mm-hmm. movies would play sometimes for years, you know. Sure. Uh, people would just come and go. Uh, and also because film distribution was different then. A movie would play here, then it would open across the country there. And the very first movie I saw as a kid was The Vikings. Sure, okay. And uh, at a second-run theater, and my father took me to see it, and I really had no idea maybe what a movie was. And that scene, when if you know the picture where Kirk Douglas gets his eye ripped out by a by, by a falcon oh. carried by uh, Tony Curtis, and that freaked me out. You know, now in the movie you don't see anything. You see Kirk Douglas wrestling with this dummy bird, and then he pulls the bird off, and then he has his hand over his eye, and blood is trickling out between his fingers. But that was enough. That's all you need today. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I was, it terrified me so much. I mean, I that I remember for the rest of the picture. Anytime somebody brought out a sword, put out a sword, I would turn my head and look at the exit sign <laughs> until I heard the fighting was over, and then turn back. I was afraid that somebody next was going to lose another eye or lose a head or something. Right, but right. that was the first. Well, so the very first film I ever saw was a movie with Kirk Douglas. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it's funny because uh, Howard Berger, who was one of the commentators for uh, Light at the Edge of the World on the Kino DVD, he talks about seeing the Light at the Edge of the World when he was like maybe seven years old. Wow. Uh, parents took him to see it, and he was traumatized. You know, <laughs> and his parents were shocked. He said, Wait a minute, we thought it was a kid's movie. Um, you know, yeah, you know, I was. Like they have an impact to you as a kid. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, we're going to be doing uh, Billy Wilder in May. Finally, it's a director we probably should have done a long time ago. Um, really? I thought you'd done him already for sure. Oh wow. no, we haven't. For some reason, like there are, there's still some big names that we've put off. Mm-hmm. For various reasons, but we're excited to do Billy Wilder, and obviously, um, I think for me it's it's a tough call to choose a favorite Kirk Douglas performance because I love him pretty much equally in Ace of the Ace in the Hole and Paths of Glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's still a lot I have to see. I mean, certainly once the news got out, a lot of people were saying things like uh, Detective Story is another one I should see. Uh, Lust for Life, he you know earned, earned a nomination for playing Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, right. so, so there's a lot of Kirk Douglas roles I should catch up on. Have you seen The Bad and the Beautiful? Did we? Did you watch that for the Vincent Minnelli? I don't think so. I really like yeah, The Bad and the Beautiful. Came, that's, actually, that just came out uh, two months ago on Blu-ray for oh, the cool. first time, finally. 
That's cool. Yeah. Are there a couple others? And real also quickly? the sort of sort of sequel to it, Two Weeks in Another Town. Right. Yeah. Oh, the Chicago right. Film Society played that uh, like a couple years ago, and I missed it, and I really regretted it. Hmm. Um. Yeah. It's. I, also, I like. I like uh, that Kirk Douglas kind of throughout his career. Once he had clout, once he was a big box office draw, he consistently used uh, that power to get interesting and weird projects made. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, look at Spartacus, for yeah. example, yeah. which has an Anthony Mann connection. Which one is that? Oh, I, mean, wait, what's the, I mean, what's the Anthony Mann connection? I know what movie Anthony Spartacus Anthony Mann is. was fired off that movie. He was the original oh, director. Oh, that's right. That's oh, right. Wow. Wow. Right. He was fired after the first week of shooting. <laughs> That's amazing. That opening scene in Spartacus, that huge panoramic shot of the uh, people working in the quarry, he directed that. That's mm-hmm. his shot. And then he fell out with Kirk Douglas, and then um, uh, Kirk Douglas decided he wanted a director he thought he could control. Sure. And so... I think I'll call Stanley and see what he's up to. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, notorious for being just doing whatever anyone else wanted him to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, what about you, Jim? What have you watched recently? Oh, my gosh. I am so excited to talk about uh, a film. It's funny because I consider it to be a favorite of mine. And I don't know if we've ever talked about it at length. Um, and, and really quickly... I, I've always said that this show wouldn't have existed without the Row 3 Cinecast and Film Junk, but of course, one of the first movie podcasts I ever heard was Film Spotting, and last night they had their 15th anniversary event at the Music Box, in which they showed what remains in my top five favorite westerns of all time, Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know if we've ever discussed it in great detail in the past. I'm sure it's come up, mm-hmm. but I also th- I also think like, it's a movie most people have seen, and what else can be said about such a classic? But, I, I mean, watching it on the big screen in 35mm is remarkable to, to, to experience, because I never have. Um, but I had forgotten about the opening, and the introduction to the majority of the characters is dialogue-free. It's pretty... Like right. I, I completely had forgotten about how this film opens. And Describe like, the sequence because it's actually been quite a while since I've seen it. Well, it's really just it. you know uh, Dean Martin playing dude essentially goes into a a saloon and you know he's clearly pining for a drink. He's clearly he's got the shakes and he's you know it's it's basically him looking at the waitress as she you know a a, a tray of drinks is being you know presented and then he looks to the you know to the to the bar and there's this guy like you know holding this thing of whiskey and just slowly putting it to his lips and 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 relishing it and sort of knowing that uh Dean Martin is uh you know wants a drink and he throws a 50 cent piece into the spittoon is that what it is and right. yeah and then of course out of desperation, he's considering going for this 50 cent piece because he so badly wants a drink and has no money. And then, so of course he starts going through the spittoon, but then it's kicked over by John Wayne and very low angle shot. You get to see that's our introduction to chance played by John Wayne. And, uh, yeah, it's like these, and nothing is said. Like I'm expecting him to say, what are you doing? 
And they basically, it's just even with the confrontation with with the guy at the bar, uh, that automatically, you know, there's just violence that erupts, but nothing, nobody says anything, which I was like, wow, this is crazy. It's like a silent Western to start out this film. Um, well, and, I'm going to say something controversial, and actually, oh, here we go. There's a piece. Um, I think El Dorado is a better movie than Rio Bravo. There are people who feel that way. You know, I think Red River is a better movie than Rio Bravo. So. Yeah, but but, well, but El Dorado is sort of kind of a remake. Ah, uh, I see. Mm-hmm, Rio mm-hmm. Bravo. So Hulk. do you, do you like and Robert the Mitchum? Reason, more? The reason I say that is for a couple of reasons. First of all, you don't have that annoying stereotype Mexican character. Oh, Senor John! I'm going to have you see Oh, John! Okay, he's not there in the movie. Okay, okay. No I can see that. Life. I can see that argument, sure. Uh, number two, no song. I don't need song. I like okay? the songs. I, I kind of like I the songs. Song. Actually, there was, <laughs> a, there was a song sequence in El Dorado that Hawk cut out, I think, for the better. Mm-hmm. Number two, I really prefer James Caan over Ricky Nelson. Ricky Nelson cannot act. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he it's fine. <laughs> James Caan already got that edge to him. You know, yeah, but every every time Walter Brennan speaks, I'm laughing, um, and I, I just like I think it's the camaraderie and the friendship between all these characters together mm-hmm. that really because not a lot of happens. It's a hangout. Movie. Well, so here's the thing, and I, I have another controversial thing. I've only seen Rio Bravo once. It was about five years ago, so I can't make an impassioned, detailed argument as to uh, why I feel this way. But I I think it's fine. I think it's okay, but I hmm. never saw it as this great film. And I think a big part of that is that so little happens and it's not necessarily like it's building to the, you know, a confrontation is going oh, yeah. to happen. You spend the whole movie waiting for it. And then when it does happen, and it was especially interesting because I was thinking about this specific scene when I was watching all these Anthony Mann films, because Anthony Mann's such an incredible action director. Mm-hmm. I really think that ending shootout is kind of dull. Really? Yeah. I mean, then I think again, it's beautifully staged. If, if and- I watched it again, maybe I wouldn't feel that way. But that's in my memory. I just remember thinking, oh, this is it. Uh, well, you see, that's why, in a way, you used to see El Dorado. I think I will. Well, okay. Because well, El Dorado has a shootout halfway that's in a church mm. that's knockout. Knockout shootout. Okay, and, I'm, I'm willing and to also, see that too. Also, character-wise, what they do with Robert Mitchum, who's basically the Dean Martin of what Dean Martin character is, right? He's more developed because when Eldorado, I'm sorry, Rio Bravo, Dean Martin is a drunk already, and we see him rise up in El uh, in Eldorado. We see Mitchum as a sheriff, sober. And then time has passed by. We found out that he's turned to the bottle mm. because of a failed relation, a failed romance. And so we see him drunk. And so we have to see him rise back to the level that he was at the beginning of the movie. Okay. Okay. That's, That's really good writing. That's real characterization. Because I, we have to see this character from the top come to the bottom and then have to make his way back up. I like that Jim started this by saying, like, well, what else can be said about Rio Bravo? Everyone knows it's the greatest. And then now it's like, oh, I got to defend it now. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't I understand that. But it's like at the same time, like the songs, everybody clapped at the end. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's it just made me feel good. It's one of those like lately I've been, you know, especially around award season time, you see so many downers. And, and like once you get to a movie that just works as an entertainment Without like, okay, nothing really deep is going to be said about masculinity or anything in this film. It's just, 
you're hanging out with these with this band of characters, and they all have their own personalities, very distinct personalities. And uh, yeah, I just I, I I like the tension. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's building to something, and you know that like these guys are sort of just hanging around without actually acting on all their you know impulses, and just. I think like just hanging out with these four characters in general is a, is a joy, and I know that like some people go, well, the romance with Angie Dickinson. I don't know if I really buy that, and like some people in the audience when they were like you know kissing or whatever, were just going like, oh, I don't know, it's a little weird, <laughs> it's a little weird. Um, and I can I can understand that, but I like it's they have a screwball chemistry kind of together. They they they, they talk over one another. They talk really fast, and I think that's it's definitely all- a Howard Hawks movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, for sure. Howard Hawks movie. Howard Hawks made more. Romantic comedy than any other genre. Oh yeah, he makes the movie. I think it's so also course, worth noting the snappy batter, the uh, you know my girl, my gal Friday. Absolutely, and I think yeah, it's yeah, also right. also worth noting, Jim, that you didn't grow up watching westerns. No, no, this You're, was my the first, first exposure. The to first it. westerns that you watched were because. You grew up and like Quentin Tarantino would ha, sort of would go on tours where he would just talk about all these old movies that he loved as much as he'd talk about his own movies. And Rio Bravo was always like at the top of the list. And I think that was like it's not just a movie on its own. It's your entire entry point to the genre. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. There, it has a special place in my heart. Yeah. And to see it on the big screen only reaffirmed it. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, there's well, again a lot of Hawks movies I still need to see, but mm-hmm. I'm excited. Well, to like continue. I said, you know, I. I said before, I grew up watching westerns because my father was a great western lover. Absolutely. And, you know, I went, to, went with him all the time to see movies, and he wanted to see westerns. So uh, I remember Good and the Bad and the Ugly when it came out. And mm-hmm. I remember I was stunned because I'd never seen a film like that before. I couldn't put it into words. Sure. I said, this is unlike any other western I've ever seen. And then the following year was The Wild Bunch. <laughs> oh wow, that's and, a hell of a and, you know. And my father took me to see the Wild Bunch, which he didn't like. And I was like, I was, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. Other people, what's going on? Yeah, I, I was also thinking about the Wild Bunch a lot as I was watching a bunch of Anthony Mann westerns, just in terms of how much further he goes with the violence than mm-hmm. so many other directors. Just in terms of oh, how, yeah, that's trait. how we'll, he we'll stages. Yeah, we'll get into that. But uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was my first western because it was five dollars on DVD at a Walgreens, <laughs> <laughs> and like I literally was like, oh, I've heard of this. This is supposed to be a good movie, and yeah. that was definitely uh, as the first western you see. It is just such an incredibly expansive, epic adventure story that it, every character is so perfectly cast, and mm-hmm. it's so exciting. It was also, you know, and I was at an age where I wasn't watching a lot of films from before I was born. Um, so, like, it was also sort of an important entry point for me as far as, like, you should go back and watch these movies. I, there's something there for you. Like, yeah. um, And speaking of silent, you know, visual storytelling at its best, like, the... The opening of Once Upon a Time in the West is uh-huh. just breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's yeah, just I so remember, many great examples. I remember going with my father to see that. It came out came out a month before Wild Bunch. <laughs> came um, the month before Wild Bunch came Jeez. out. Yeah, two really important films that summer sixty nine. Western. Uh I will tell you that one of the things you miss is, you know, on I would watch a lot of old movies on TV because growing up as a kid, they showed old movies on TV right. all the time. Of course, time. yeah. PCM. Every day. You know, all the local stations showed old movies. So, you know, my love for old movies came from what I saw on TV, you know. And even silent movies, they would show on kind of regular basis, like on public stations, public, uh, public television stations. So, um, 
in a way, the younger generation kind of misses that. You're missing that because it was part of you growing up, just watching these old movies all the time. I think I think there is something uh, that this that especially people my age and younger will not sort of understand. Like I'm a, I'm I guess on the little bit older side of millennial, but like I still didn't really experience this. I think there is something to. A movie is on TV, so you watch it because that's what's on TV and there are four channels. As opposed to now when everything is on demand, you it's a lot easier to never leave your comfort zone and not be yeah. exposed to things that mm-hmm. would broaden your horizons. Um, whereas in the era where you watch just what's on, you would have that potential – sort of eye-opening moment like that I had when I just watched, you know, Good, Bad, the Ugly on a Lark and stuff like that. You could have that way more frequently because you were so not in charge of whatever you happened to be watching. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and also, in a way, you're missing the film-going experience because movie screens were actually larger back then. Well, yeah, I mean, they are today. The the that's a whole different yeah world of the yeah theatrical right. so excretings have definitely diminished. Like Good, the Bad, the Ugly on a really big screen. Is something else altogether. Yeah, and now uh-huh. nowadays you feel like the movie theaters don't even want you to be awake during the movie. They want you to be <laughs> reclined and have a drink and maybe take a little nap. <laughs> yeah, when I when I go to those theaters, I don't I don't put up my legs. I don't because I, I feel like I'm going to fall asleep. I really do. I get comfortable, too comfortable in a way. But I mean, I don't mind those chairs. But at the same time, you know, uh, I think I think Sergio could do an entire podcast on his own about the Chicago movie theater mm-hmm. history. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I. Yeah, I got to get back because I've been posting that stuff on my Facebook page, and I have to go back to it uh, because it's still because all these great movie theaters, all these great movie theaters that were downtown and in your neighborhood. Yeah. Gee, you know, I used to walk to a movie theater and oh, see yeah, a movie yeah. at the neighborhood theater. Something which people don't know anymore. And and um, someone who's been on your show, Nick DiGiulio, and I, we ran, we met, we met. Remember the times in the seventies, or that when we would go to these all these great movie theaters downtown, and the, and at the time they were falling apart. You know, the big <laughs> joke about the State Lake Theater oh, yeah. was that you sat down, you put your feet up because some furry animal would run across your feet, <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, and usually if you heard somebody scream, either, even in the middle of a comedy, uh oh. <laughs> someone, someone got stuck. <laughs> right. Um, and so um, that, that was, and also movie theaters, particularly neighborhood theaters, were a communal space mm-hmm. where the neighborhood got together. Sure. And once those movie theaters began to disappear, in a way, the community began to disappear. Yeah, that's a sad fact. And we became yeah. more isolated. Yeah. There used to be theaters where I'd see regulars, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, I was a regular. There were, there were. well, Jesus. Well, I was growing up at the Hyde Park Theater, which, you know, I went to maybe at least three times a month. Mm. You know, it was always something. And, and the great thing about the Hyde Park Theater was the guy who owned it had a very eclectic taste. So he also showed, he would show Hollywood movies, you know, second run. He would show foreign movies. The first Francois Truffaut film I ever saw was at the Hyde Park Theater, Stolen Kisses. Wow. And I had, I didn't read, I kind of sort of heard of Francois Truffaut. And I, 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 to be honest with you, I don't remember what I saw of the picture, but I would not have had that experience. Yeah. Truffaut is that guy from Close Encounters, right? <laughs> yeah. He's, that, he's the famous actor from. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> 
that's always that's always the funny thing on IMDb when you search someone's name and they'll have their name and then parentheses like what they're quote unquote known for, but it's always the wrong thing. It's always just like, oh, I guess he had a, like a bit part in this movie that is more famous than the movies he's actually known for. Yeah, Patrick, what did you see this week? Well, I speaking of eye-opening experiences uh, and uh, walking down to see movies, uh, my very brief period in college, you know, I, I, went, I went to Columbia College for a good long 80 days. Uh, Sounds about <laughs> how long I went. Yeah, exactly. And in that time, my dorm was in the loop, and I was uh, just a block away from the uh, – what's uh, what is it McClure? What's no, the big uh, library in the loop? The one I work at, yeah, the, Washington? <laughs> yeah, Harold yeah. Washington. So yeah. I, I I lived a block away from the Harold Washington Library, right. and I would check out movies from there constantly, and that was a great experience for me to discover a bunch of movies. And one of the movies that I saw in that uh, brief period of time that always stuck with me was Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together, ooh, um, which I have not seen since then, but I, I watched it uh, just last week. Um, my partner Regina uh, uh, every year does a sort of there's a on Letterboxd, there's a bunch of film challenges that people all do together where they, over the course of a year, they try to watch, you know, like there was one year where it was, you know, there's a women film challenge. You try to watch different films by women directors and stuff like that. And there's different categories. So it's like, uh, you know, and this this year, Regina's doing a, a queer film challenge where you're trying to watch uh, different, you know, movies by queer directors. And, you tr- you know, the challenge would be something like a female director directing a movie about two men loving each other, a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a male director directing a movie about two women loving each other, all these different things. And, um, you know, one of the movies we watched uh, was just last week, Happy Together. Um, and that was a really important movie for me to see at that time because it really challenged the way I thought about film structure. It challenged the way I thought about editing. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a, Great Wong Kar Wai movie from 1997, uh, starring uh, Leslie Chung and uh, Tony Leung, and I'm probably mispronouncing those, but that's just that was right to me. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, they're just two absolutely terrific actors who you know have been in a bunch of his other movies, and they're these two Hong Kong, or I guess one of them's from I forget. They're they're two. It might be Hong Kong. It might be Taipei uh, or Taiwan. But uh, they're two sort of expats living in Argentina. Um, who have this very sort of acrimonious relationship uh, with each other. And it it's um, the thing about it is it jumps back and forth in time and it, it sort of jumps back and forth between black and white and color footage. Huh. Um, there's, there's a real sort of almost collage feeling to it where it has all of these messy ends, which is, you know, that's a Wong Kar Wai way. He likes to yeah, sort yeah, of for sure. You know, he he sort of has a very wide berth with the different places his movies go and different characters who come in and out of storylines and stuff like that. And it's just an astounding looking movie. Um, is it, it on Blu-ray? It is. It's out of print. Uh, my understanding is it won't be out of print forever, and that's all I can say about that. But like, uh-huh. it's a. I I own the. Uh, I guess the Kino Lorber uh, original release or whatever on DVD. Mm. From the 90s, and it looks terrible, which is sort of the problem because it is a movie that is so much about the the colors and the textures and the way it looks. And it is just an early DVD that does not look good. But uh, you can still tell that it's just this incredible movie. And um, it's it sort of falls into one of the like the slot that we would talk about, like Duke of Burgundy or Phantom hmm. Thread or something like that, where it is about this sort of. A battle of wills within a relationship. Um, in this case, uh, 
uh, one of the men is sort of has low status in the relationship and the other man just kind of does whatever he wants and that leads to their breakup because he can't take it anymore. But the that man comes back uh, badly beaten. Um, you know, you can maybe assume that it, it was uh, a, a sort of a, a hate, you know, related uh, violent incident, but you don't really find out what happened to him. But he can't really fend for himself anymore. So the... The, he, the, his old boyfriend takes him back in and sort of has to look after him. But as he's doing that, he realizes that now he has control over him in a way he never has. So suddenly he becomes sort of the aggressor and gets kind of vindictive and sadistic. Mm. Um, it's really, it's a really interesting character study. Uh, Cause it is about this character um, played by uh, Tony Leung uh, who thinks of himself as like, well, I'm the victim here because he was so awful to me. And, you know, when we were together before and like everything I'm doing now is totally justified, but really it's just a, it's sort of a matter of opportunity. Like who you are as a person is sort of based on what the kind of person you are able to be. (laughs) So it's like, he always thought of himself as a good person who was sort of getting the short shrift. But when it, once he had all the power, he sort of realized or it, hmm. towards the end, he's so um, maybe it's ambiguous, like a lot of Wong Kar Wai movies. But you get the feeling that he uh, sort of learns about himself and the kind of person he is through this experience. But it's a lot of elliptical editing. It's almost shot entirely in master shots. Um, there's very little coverage at all, and it's almost always just these little images that speak a lot about the kind of people they are and the relationship they're in, and what it feels like to be an expatriate and to feel cramped up in this apartment. And the idea is, and I guess, you know, they meet another character who this is their situation as well. So maybe this is true in Argentina in general, or maybe it's invented for the movie, but it's like they're tourists who ran out of money and then couldn't leave. Uh, and they're sort of just trapped there as uh, these immigrants working these, you know, so displacement is part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that sort of ties into Wong Kar Wai's theme that he yeah. always goes back to about alienation and, Stuff like that. And they're so you, sort of stuck in these very low-wage jobs because they don't speak the language fluently. Does it have the energy of, like, Chungking Express in terms of it? It's 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 more somber than okay. Chungking Express. It's, there's no genre element. There's no okay. gangster elements to, like, Chungking Express or Fallen Angels. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, it does have uh, sort of the joy of discovery. You get okay. the idea, uh, like with those two movies that Wong Kar Wai is just sort of, he has an idea and he runs with it and he's not afraid to go big. And, um, you know, that part of that is the, you know, switching between film stocks and switching between color and black and like jumping in time. Like there is that energy to it where it's, it's just a film unlike you've ever seen. And it feels like someone, uh, trying out a lot of different ideas at once. Um, well in one week, um, Eric and Colin and I are recording our 1990 retrospective episode, which mm-hmm. we do every year, and uh, I'm I've got uh, Days of Being Wild. Oh yeah, to absolutely. Watch within That's the week, Leslie so. uh, Leslie uh, Chiang is in that one. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, Wong Kar Wai. We talk about if I, if I had to make a list of like top five episodes or directors that we could go back and redo. Yeah. Wong Kar Wai would be one of them. That was, I, we had a whole movie that went missing because yeah, exactly. the recording got screwed up. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Maybe we'll consider doing that at some point. I was in also the I was also wondering. I know Jim, you see way more movies every year than I do, um, and uh, I imagine Sergio, you're in a similar position. Uh, what happened to sort of Wong Kar Wai's 
career. That's a good question because uh, I honestly don't know. Because I, I, you never hear about. You, Did, he, he still makes like the Grandmaster. Yeah, he still makes thing. films occasionally, but you never really hear about them that often. And I wonder, like, what was where, where did things start to turn for him? Do you happen to know that, Sergio? Because I don't. No, I don't. Um, you know, they're heavy with some directors. Sometimes you're hot and then sometimes you're not. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's planning a comeback or he's got a, many projects in the works. Right. Um, so, I, of course, he'll be back. Um, let's see what happens with the Cannes Film Festival. Maybe he's got something that premiere at Cannes. Um, you would hope be, so. If he has a new film, that's where it'll be, where it'll be premiering. Because yeah, so, he's, he's uh, so revered and renowned, and you know, uh, right. so many directors cite him as an influence. Uh, but I guess between I haven't seen the Grandmaster, but I and I know there are defenders of my Blueberry Nights, but I wasn't crazy about that. I one. Feel, I, maybe that's where things turned. Where yeah, he made an English like. language. I heard someone. I, this might have been uh, our okay, guest. That, that, that wasn't good, but that <laughs> shouldn't be enough to. And him. Exactly, yeah, especially right. for someone like him. For it feels like he doesn't have super huge budgets. I mean, obviously, if you're making a Wuja movie, that's going to be you know Grandmaster. That's going to be a more expensive film. But mm-hmm. it feels like he would have the clout to be able to go back and make another In the Mood for Love or another uh, oh, Happy yeah. Together. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, I, I do wonder. Uh, so I think this was our guest on the Wong Kar Wai episode said this, but I might have read this somewhere else as well. Someone was talking about how. His movies are very quirky. Like they're kind of things. If you just, if I just told you the plots of all the different stories in, you know, Chunking Express or Fallen Angel, you would think like, oh, that sounds really twee and insufferable. <laughs> but it kind of works. And he was saying that I think one of the reasons that Wong Kar Wai was able to cross over the English speaking audiences is because it doesn't play as twee when you don't speak the language. You, you sort oh, of that's it, interesting. You it, because there is that language barrier, you sort of interpret it as being more realistic and it changes the tone slightly. And then mm-hmm. once he made an English language movie that was off putting, I don't know. That was that was just an interesting thought process, especially when you think about uh Asian directors or, you know, even other foreign language directors coming to America making English language movies with mixed results. You know, we had Bong Joon Ho did like Okja and that was a very that felt like a movie that was a little out of his control. Uh, uh, I didn't see Stoker, but I know people really do like that one. Oh, yeah. so maybe that's like an exception. But I really like that one, probably because it's just essentially a remake of. Uh, oh gosh, I always forget the name of that Hitchcock movie. Uh, not Strangers on a Train, but uh, Evil Uncle. Mm-hmm. What's that? Uh, uh, you mean the? Um, uh, oh gosh. Shadow of a Doubt. Yes, yeah, Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, that's it. Stoker's essentially that. Yeah. Which is great. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I, I should I should go back and watch some Wong Kar Wai at some point. But I'm definitely going to watch Days of Being Wild soon. And uh, yeah, that's a great... That's a great one to bring up, Patrick. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, Fallen Angels, Happy to, and uh, not Happy. Uh, I mean, I do love Happy Together, but especially In the Mood for Love. Oh, God. Are yeah, just that's classic. two of my all time, you know, favorite movies. And when he is really hitting, it really feels like he's doing something with film that no one else can do. Um, part of it is that style that, you know, he, it's a mix of the way he shoots scenes in often a single master shot where mm. everything that you need to know about what's happening is in the composition. Right. Um, and then, and then just the way it, the editing will jump in time and he sort of, he trusts the audience to pick up what has happened in the gaps. He trusts you to follow 
things like I, I there is when that is really hitting on all cylinders, it's just like better than anything. And uh, yeah, I, I, I should go back and watch uh, Days of Being Wild as well because yeah. I haven't seen that one since a long time ago and I don't remember it very much. And so, you know, speaking of Tarantino introducing me to the Western genre, he introduced me to foreign film because sure. you know, he released uh, Chunking Express under his Rolling Thunder label. Uh, and I got to see that by renting it at a video store, and that was one of my very first introductions to you know uh, Hong Kong and that 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 whole world. And I was blown away by it. And yeah, I could see what you're saying about that being twee because it kind of has a manic, manic pixie dream girl yeah. character in it. But at the time, that didn't even occur. Like if to you me. saw an English language version of that where it's Zoe Deschanel singing California Dreaming, yeah, like over a scene oh, yeah. of her on screen, like that would be like insufferable. But exactly, yeah. Uh, it works in those movies. Uh, you remember Rolling Thunder, right, Sergio? Like so he put out a lot of interesting titles. Um, Switchblade Sisters didn't that get a re-release? Uh, uh, um, uh, Rolling Thunder, the um, uh, the uh, uh, William Devane movie. Yeah, and then he put out like T- Tarantino had his own like distribution label or company for a right. while. He came out with Detroit Nine Thousand. That's ah. right, Detroit Nine Thousand was a big one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, Rolling Thunder. He, uh, wait a minute. You mean the movie Rolling Thunder, right? Well, that Rolling Thunder Rolling was the. the n- well, I, it was both. I think it was the name of Tarantino's company, and I right. think he also released that the uh, film. Yeah, because, because mm. Rolling Thunder was. Well, I, once again, I went to the show, saw that picture, and and that film was a stunner. And there's a really interesting backstory about that movie. Oh, I don't doubt uh, it. I should I should look into that. Yeah, that's a, that's the, the really story was movie. that the, the movie was released by American International, but originally it was produced and financed by 20th Century Fox. Hmm. And when they made the picture, they were very, very excited because they thought they had their taxi driver. <laughs> Understandable. And they did a test screening in the South, worst place, to a family audience. I don't know what <laughs> God. And the producer was there, and Fox executives were there, and given in a way what happens in this picture, there's a scene when Robert Duvall's hand is put in a um, in a uh, garbage disposal, sink garbage disposal, and a woman got up in the audience and turned, a woman stood up and turned the audience and said. You're going to allow these Hollywood bastards to show this filth to us, <laughs> and and uh, and the audience began to, you know, get unwrestled and they began to squirm and start shouting. And Lawrence Gordon, who was one of the producers of the movie, who is from the South, he's from Mississippi, said, "Told the executives, get out of here. There's going to be a lynching," oh, because man. he said, growing up from the South. Lynch mobs are always usually started by women because women will will force the men do something about that black man. Do something, you know? And that's what they'll go do it. And 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 Lois Gordon says it's, it's women. He said, Get out of here because it could be a lynching because women get men riled up and then men feel that they have to show their men they are and they lynch the guy. So they all escaped. Uh, got under limos and left, and they sold the film to American International. And American International at the time was going out of business. So they really didn't have the money to really promote this picture. And I saw that film when it came out. It got a very small release. And I said, oh, my God, this is un- 
fucking believable. <laughs> this is great, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and I or as I call it the John McCain story. So, <laughs> uh, because um, you know that one scene because the story was that he he's a he's a Vietnam prisoner of war who has come back, returned to Texas after being years in captivity. And uh, he can't escape his past. I mean, what he went through, he, you know, even though he's reunited with his wife and child, he sleeps in a tool shed in a cot because that's what he did. He slept in a small prison room. And um, there's one scene where, it's the creepy scene in the movie, where he, this one of the guys asked him, uh, well, they taught you, how did they do it? So William Devane has the guy tie his hands behind his back and, you know, pull, pull really hard, right? And the guy asks Devane, he says, how did you, uh, how did you survive this? And Devane says, you learned to love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, that, yeah, that, that movie is just a total stunner. And for me, like, the creepiest part is right towards the end when he shows up at uh, Tommy Lee Jones' house. And it's like Tommy Lee Jones has just been waiting this entire time for yeah. him to show up. And it's just like... All right, let's go. <laughs> like, yep. That is like, yeah. it's, that it's says like so Tommy much. Lee Jones is, he, he's practically catatonic. Yeah. Right. As he went through. And so he, no, it, there's hardly any dialogue. He says, I found him. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I'll get my beer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, he, oh, man. He, that's what he's been waiting for. And when that whole scene, the basically the, um, the uh, taxi driver sequence end where they're in that brothel and they kill everybody. Look at them. It's, it's precision military. Sure, yeah. It's precision military. The way they throw bullets and the way they move through that thing like like a machine, <laughs> you know, because because these guys have been trained in the military and all emotion is out from them. They're just out to kill the bastard. You know, the only downside about doing the What We Watch segment is it makes me want to watch all yeah, these yeah, movies, yeah. like, right now. It is. It is funny, like... <laughs> Thinking that uh, executives th- like thinking that movie was going to be like a big Ugh. a big taxi driver or like you know mm-hmm. you could see that it's like the same mentality they're like I, I think this is I think that that movie predates First Blood but uh, yes but like you yeah. can see the thing that made First Blood uh, a big hit is that it's like oh you can relate to Rambo like you you really feel for Rambo oh yeah and I love and I love that Rolling Thunder goes in such the opposite direction where it's just like they are such husks of human beings and Mm -hmm. it's just the it's it's there's nothing satisfying about the revenge the whole reason the revenge genre exists is so you as an audience member can watch the most violent things happening and go and feel okay about saying yes you know and that movie does not (laughs) let at you at all no no there's no catharsis in that way right um Right. You know, I mean, um, uh, here, you're talking about a Kirk Douglas connection. Originally, they wanted Kirk Douglas in the role of the colonel. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, he, he wanted to he wanted the script to be written so the movie's going to be more about him. Uh, and so they he they passed on him and he went to Richard Crenna. But then Richard Crenna, of course, had the death of line in that movie. It's over, Johnny. Well, Patrick, I think it's time. I think it might be time to talk about Anthony Mann. I'm so glad those instincts kicked in and we used to awkwardly say the name at the same time. Anthony Mann. Anthony Mann. Anthony Mann. Doing the things that Anthony can. Made some movies with Jimmy Stewart. Anthony Mann. 
Is it a noir or an epic? We're about a man traveling across the West in Poverty Row. Who did it best? Director Man, Anthony Man. Amy Man, Amy Man, Amy Man hates Anthony Man. She prefers Howard Hawks, Amy Man. When we decided to come back, me and Jim sort of traded off. He would pick some, and I would pick some. And Anthony Mann's one I wanted to do forever because he is just absolutely one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. And he's kind of uh, conveniently, his career is very easily divided into uh, sort of several sections. So mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about Raw Deal from 1948, and we're going to be talking about The Furies from 1950. Raw Deal uh, is, comes from his sort of uh, Poverty Row uh, noir period of uh, – and uh, The Furies is sort of at the beginning where he's figuring out uh, what would later become his uh, definitive Western style. Um, but uh, before we get to his uh, period making uh, noir films, uh, I, wonder, I wonder, Sergio, if you could tell us a little bit about sort of how Anthony Mann you know, got into the film business and all that. Well, it was very unusual. Uh, he, uh, as I said, his films, the common themes in his movies are um, psychologically tortured heroes, dysfunctional families, and and twisted relationships. And that kind of expresses his growing up. Uh, he was born in 1906. He died in 1967 or 61 while making a movie. He died relatively young. Hmm. Um, he uh, was born in San Diego. His, his real name was Emil Bundesmann. His father was an Austrian immigrant, and his mother was American. And what happened was that he was a very, very young boy. His parents joined this very odd cult called Loma Land, which was based in the San Diego area. It was this sort of spiritual, quasi-spiritual, quasi-artistic uh, community. Hmm. And one of the tenets was that children had to be raised separately from their parents. Now, what happened when he was about three or four years old, his father became very ill. So they decided to go, he decided to go back to Austria for treatment. And so they went and they left little Anthony to be raised by members of the Loma land. And they were gone for a decade. They were gone for 10 years. As a matter of fact, he never saw his father again. Uh, what happened was that his mother relatives uh, started contacting her and said, are you going to raise this kid <laughs> or what? So she came back to the United States. His father was so ill by that time, he stayed in Austria. As I said, he never saw his father again. He moved to New York and city or Jersey, one of the two. And um, he started doing all kind of odd jobs. They were poor, and he drifted into acting. And actually, he acted in some silent movies. But he started doing work in the theater, and eventually got so good, he started directing plays. And in the late 1930s, he was offered a job by um, the Selznick Film Company to be a casting director. And at that time, if you were a casting director, one of the things you had to do was to film, basically direct, casting auditions. If the studio had 
uh, a particular actor or actress they're interested in signing up or someone they were considering for a role, they will take that person, put dress them in costume, put them up on an existing set, and have them do a scene. So that's the man would direct those things. And that's basically the first time he directed on film. Uh, he went from there to becoming assistant director at Paramount. And he worked some films there, including Sullivan's Travels. He worked with Preston Sturgis. Right, yep. And then eventually Paramount gave him a job directing low-budget B-movies. And by then, by the late 40s, he moved over to Poverty Row, which were these very low-budget film studios like Monogram, PRC, Eagle Lion. And that's when he found his voice, as you may say. Particularly when he teamed up with... Um, John Alton, the great cinematographer John Alton, and he made such great movies such as He-Man and Raw Deal, which we'll talk about, and uh, a film I really love, um, uh, Reign of Terror, also called The Black Book. Yeah, the I want to see that one for sure. Yeah, the only film noir film set during the French Revolution. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, actually, you can see you can catch it on YouTube, actually. It's hmm. kind of like free. But... Um, but, that, but that's what started his real, that, as I say, he found his voice and his style, and particularly the subject matter and themes that really interested him. So, continue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because uh, I just found out today, too, that Classic Flicks has put out a Blu-ray of Raw Deal, and I'm like, darn it, I wish I got my hands yeah. on that, because um, the DVD I got from the library and, and the, the, the version that's streaming on Amazon, they're not the best transfers. No, the, a lot of, there yeah. are very few Poverty Row films that have had, you know, very good transfers because, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, it's a catalog that's not, a lot of it went into public domain. Yeah. So right. it's, it's harder for a, one of those labels to invest the money when there are so many other releases of it. Um, I, I yeah, chose classic, Raw. A, a classic flick that also released T Men. Mm-hmm. On mm-hmm. Um, on um, T-Men on a, on a Blu-ray, there is a really good Columbia DVD, a Sony DVD of Reign of Terror, Black Book. Oh, okay. You can get on demand, but it's re- it's the best ver- best looking version I've ever. It's standard, but the best looking version I've ever seen. I've got it's really great. So I chose Raw Deal as sort of. Uh, a way of typifying his uh, noir period, even though they're not all the same movie. They go out, they have different influences and mm-hmm. stuff. You can look at the sort of docudrama of T-Men and there's a little bit of that in border incident as well. Um, you know there, but a uh, raw deal for me is so elemental. It's so simplistic. It's the material it's based on is it's almost dumb. It's so it's like, and, and that's honestly, that was, that was sort of where Anthony Mann's career went because when you start, when you're working in poverty row, it's not just that you don't have budgets for nice sets and special effects or whatever. You also don't have budgets for good scripts. These are scripts that are being cranked out very fast without a lot of thought mm-hmm. because they're just, they're just, they're just trying to get more product out there. And he realized uh, that he could do better work if he just chose a really simplistic script and then put all of the meaning in the camera work and the cinematography and oh, the clearly, sort of compositions. Yeah. yeah. Then uh-huh. relying on, you know, he doesn't always have the best actors. He doesn't have the best script, the material. So he's able to get a lot, like pretty much all of the meaning through the lighting and the cinematography. And, you know, that was sort of him and John Alton d- discovered a really good way of working together. They have a lot of, you know, claustrophobic frames. He, they're, 
A lot of his uh, noir films are they're about men on the run. They're about men being chased down, and that is a very uh, easy thing to sort of express visually by just having a lot of you know uh, tight compositions. You have a lot of you'll have an object in the foreground, sort of trapping the character. Yeah, a typical composition, uh, sort of in these movies that he did with John Alton would be there's sort of a bright object in the foreground, and there's a bright object in the very farthest background. And then you have a lot of shadows and lines and stuff in between, and you create a tremendous sense of depth. There's a lot of, you know, part of Poverty Row is you don't have a necessarily have a lot of time to sh- big sets or shoot a lot of coverage or anything. So instead of, uh, you know, long scenes uh, where there's a lot of dialogue and there's, you know, uh, you know, shot and reverse shot, you'll have a lot of scenes playing out in a single very deep shot where people are going back and forth into the frame. Um, Raw Deal is a really good example of all this because Raw Deal is such a simplistic movie um, that it sort of it almost elevated it almost feels uh, like mythological or like a fairy tale at times. <laughs> uh, there, the whole film is sort of the the narrator is not you know there was there was a narrator in T Men that was sort of a because that was a docudrama kind of a movie that had sort of like a newsreel kind of narrator where they're presenting the real facts of the you know Treasury Department. Uh, same same thing in the beginning and end of border incident. Um, the narrator in this is actually uh, Claire Trevo. Uh, no, Claire Trevor, not Trevo. Uh, Claire Trevor, who is an amazing actor. Uh, she's like the best part of Key Largo. She's been in a bunch of other very important noir films, and she is just one of the two women that this guy played by uh, Dennis, Dennis O'Keefe, O'Keefe yeah. is sort yeah. of using and manipulating in order to break out of prison and escape from the law as they like, you know, set up a dragnet trying to catch him. And it's both of these women who kind of represent two sides of his personality, which is a thing that would appear in a lot of these noir films. Uh, they sort of represent, you know, the Anthony man was really interested in anti-heroes. He's really interested in empathizing with criminals and he wanted to, you know, have main characters that were tortured. They had a bad side and they had a vicious side and a brutal side, but they also had a good hearted side in this movie. Yeah. You know, he has a history where he saved a bunch of kids from a burning orphanage or a burning apartment building or something like that. And, you know, but he also, you know, he grew up poor and he, you know, it didn't get him anywhere. So he had to turn to a life of crime. And Mm -hmm. there's sort of the angel and devil on his shoulder. So it's interesting that the narration is entirely done by the quote unquote bad girl. Um, that who, is an interesting choice, and I wasn't she expecting has, that. She has like the most tragic arc of the movie. It's it's absolutely mm-hmm. brutal because she's the one who initially helped him break out of prison. The other woman is sort of for who's like this social worker who's sort of looking at his case. She's sort of being forced against her will to aid him. Um, she he puts her in situations where she basically has to help him or watch him get killed. Um, and he, you know, because he has a turn of heart, he. He uh, he uh, rediscovers the good side of him, and he acts selflessly at the end. This it's a story of Claire Trevor, sort of as this uh, wo- in this woeful relationship with him, and then at the end she doesn't even get him. And then also you realize like, oh, like she helped him break out of prison, so probably she's narrating this whole thing from like she's going to go to jail. Yeah, <laughs> like, clearly the police a- picked her up at the end. Yeah, she ran yeah. afoul of the law, and it's just this like really interesting tragic story. And during her narration, you you hear you know this uh, theremin and this very dreamy that music playing. Really took me aback because I'm like, this is this is not the kind of music you hear in a noir, right? It's it almost yeah. So the movie kind of has this. It's not quite up there with a Laura or something, but the whole movie has this kind of dreamy feeling mm-hmm. to it. Um, that is aided by the fact that it's so stylistically over the top and it's so much about how it looks and 
less about, you know, uh, specific dialogue or, you know, clever plot developments. It's a pretty straightforward movie. There's not a lot of twists and turns. That's what I appreciated well, about it. Well, here's the thing. Um, when, uh, and I wrote this down because I had to get a word for word. Uh, back at that time, you know, any movie that was going to be made, even if it was a small studio or a major studio, the script had to be submitted to the production board. This is a great story. Mm, I, yeah. I've heard this story. Go on. Right. And they turned it down. And this was uh, Joseph Green, who was the head of the production code at the time, who was a very, a very conservative, devout Catholic. He wrote... The reason we're turning this film down is because inacceptability stems from the overall low moral tone. It is a sordid story of crime, immorality, brutality, uh, gruesomeness, illicit sex, and sex perversion. What? I'll get to that part in a minute. Without the slightest suggestion of any compensating moral values whatsoever. <laughs> That's weird. And then, and then, how did they get around it? Well, that's brilliant because what they did, because the script was not changed, what they did was that Joseph Green's son, whose name was um, Joseph Green Jr., <laughs> uh, wanted to get into movies, so Eagle Lion hired him as a story editor, which means he was the guy who had to supervise, you know, the scripts that were coming in, they were going to make. And uh, he approved it. And, of course, Joseph Green was going to contradict his son. And that's how they get the movie made. Now, when they say, when he says in here, sex perversion, who he's referring to is Raymond Burr in the movie. Yeah. Because, well, Green, according to the script, According to Green's interpretation, he read uh, uh, he read uh, Raymond Burr's character as being a gay man, and that is I do believe that is uh, there is some coding that way. Hmm. Like the way Raymond Burr plays him, he's introduced. But, you know, he's in this long robe, and he he has he is. It's a typical uh, trait. You know, it's it's a typical trope that they would bring out in old Hollywood where the the hero would be very, very masculine and then sort of as a sign of the sort of perversion and decadence of the villain, they would be kind of uh, more effeminate and gay-coded. Hmm. Right. Uh, you know, I think that the character in Murder, My Sweet. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid of the character, I can't remember the character who plays, the, um, the actor who plays the character, but um, he shows up to meet Philip Marlowe, Dick Powell, and he's dressed in like a cream-colored coat with an ascot, and it's very clear without saying anything. He's like one of those. I think. Wow. I, I think the more perverse part of Raven Burr's character is that he's this pyromaniac who seems to be aroused by fire. Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> Including well, you want to talk goes, about which goes into which goes into something that men love to do a lot: the shocking violence. Mm-hmm. He was doing his movies. We'll talk about border incidents, mm-hmm. shocking scenes there. And there's the steam bath death and tea men before this, which is just absolutely brutal. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's a, a there's a shot of uh, Jimmy Stewart's hand getting shot off or, no, and, right. from Laramie. Yeah. Laramie. Yeah. Right. Uh, in in um, in um, Reign of Terror, uh, Richard Bathart, who he plays Rose Pierre, is shot point blank in the face. <sighs> um, he he got he got away with murder. And in this 
in this movie, uh, Raw Deal, there's the Cherry Jubilee. That's set on fire. fire where yeah. um, Raymond Burr takes this flamey pot of Cherry Jubilee. He throws it at the camera, but he throws it at this woman. Right. Yeah. That's... And he, and, but man liked that. He said that. He liked to incite the audience by giving them something brutal and shocking like that. Um, he was not averse to using violence in a movie to, to excite an audience, to shock an audience, to get a point across, or particularly to define a character. Well, and the, and it's and it's not even just limited to uh, individual shocking acts. It's in general. There's you know, especially when you get to the westerns and there's shootouts and stuff like that. In general, the way he films violence, whether it's a fist fight or a shootout is so much more violent than the typical western or noir of the time when you know in the, when you think about a typical uh, fist fight in a movie someone gets socked on the jaw they fall over a table and then they land on the ground in this there's a brutal fight scene in in a, a fisherman shop uh, where you know someone gets punched and then as they're falling he keeps getting punched and he's sort of scrambling backwards there's a really desperate fast-paced feeling that you just don't get in fight scenes of this era. Oh, yeah, and there's one in uh, Man of the West that really blew my mind with uh, Gary Cooper at one point. Yeah, it's, and, right. it's, and the, yeah, the fight sequences, they don't have like a score accompanying no, them. No, they're, 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 it's, there's not it's the typical raw, sort of no rousing orchestra uh, strings or anything, or like when people yeah. get shot in his movies, they don't have the uh, they they don't have the the politeness to just like land face down, clutching their chest. They're always face up. You always see the results mm-hmm. of it. In uh, Naked Spur, there's the there's this fight scene where the uh, Native Americans are are after I forget the I forget which character it is who who raped one of the teenage girls uh, in from their tribe, and they uh, they sort of lay an ambush for them. And there is a scene where Jimmy Stewart is just beating him to death, and you just see the look on Jimmy Stewart's face as he gets a little psychotic. At, which you know we'll get into the oh, Jimmy yeah. Stewart era of it, Anthony Mann, but like afterwards, you see the Indian; he's face up. He's not, you know, it's not like we never see what happened. Yeah, um, there is just a general brutality that gives all of Anthony Mann or most of Anthony Mann movies. This really raw, exciting energy. There's a visceral punch at times with with the violence in his movies. And again, well, you know, I, and also I think about that final shootout in Winchester '73, mm-hmm. which I just saw the day before yesterday because of the new 4K restoration that's joined at the uh, Cisco Film Center. Yeah, I saw that and as well. I went Friday, and and I did the final shootout between uh, James Jimmy Stewart and Stephen McNally, um, who's the man who killed his father, and we found out that they're brothers. And someone must call it the most neurotic shootout in history, right? Because <laughs> they keep, they're hiding between these rocks and boulders, but they keep shooting at each other constantly. Yep. Shooting, shooting, shooting. And uh, there's one point where McNally is like trapped between two boulders and the bullets just are hitting around him and near him and he can't move. And it's uh, uh, is, uh, is possessed. He just keeps shooting, you know, trying to get him. Um, it's, it's exhausting. It's, yeah. it's fascinating <laughs> because what Jimmy Stewart is trying to do is avenge his father's death, and his father is the one who taught them how to shoot. They're yeah. you know the yelling at right. each other. They're sort of equally matched because they were both trained in combat by the same man. Um, his shootouts are absolutely like Anthony Mann was decades ahead of the curve in terms of action uh, cinematography. He, he has this eye for staging an action sequence that you just you really don't see like almost until the seventies 
uh, typically, where it's all about the geography of where people are located. Almost all of his movies end in a shootout on a mountain. Pretty much. <laughs> like, Pretty much. It's about. Well, no, but, but, but he will repeat himself. In the far country, once again with James Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, there's a shootout between him and uh, John McClure, uh, where, which takes place under a staircase. Like under a, under a sidewalk, one of those wooden sidewalks under the floor, and they're shooting at each other at close range. Mm-hmm. He sort of repeated that in a sense in Man from the West. Oh yeah, for sure. Where John Denver's character is literally almost buried. He's underneath the step. Like he's always physically buried, dead. And and Gary Cooper is on top of the side with these wooden sidewalks above him. And there's a one long shot where you see, like, wow, he's already, in a sense, vis- visually in the grave yeah. already. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of, when you see shootouts in a lot of uh, typical films from this era, what you're seeing is you're getting the shots of the people who are firing the gun. Like, that's where the excitement is, is you're seeing them fire. What Anthony Mann is interested in is where is the bullet going and how close is it? He's all interested in in cover. He's interested in lines of sight. It's very specifically about how is one character going to flank the other. It's it has the sense of detail to it. It, You know, he never, as far as I know, he would he never served in any kind of (laughs) armed forces or anything. So I don't I don't think this is from his experience. But he just had a very intuitive sense of how to use the geography of a space and to stage an extremely exciting uh, action sequence. And you as the viewer are very aware of the environment and where everything is, mm-hmm. where everything is going to go, and how things are going to go I mean, down. you watch Marvel movies now, they don't do this that well. I know, that's probably why I watch oh, them and yeah. I feel indifferent to them. Because like, it's eh. the exact things that they don't do. They're they're interested in the spectacle. They're not interested in the actual logistics of where mm-hmm. the characters are in relation to each other. Right. And, you know, you, you hit a valid point. When we talk about environment, we, we talk about landscape. Yeah. Uh, he, he was so brilliant at using landscape almost as another character in the movie, placing his major characters against many times magnific- magnificent landscape, the far country, man from the West, uh, particularly the Naked Spur. Winchester 73 has some really fascinating locations. Um, we can even take that... We can even take that back to Raw Deal because Raw Deal, like a lot of his westerns, Raw Deal is a story, is like a, it's a road trip. It's a story of a man. Mm -hmm. He is trying to get to a boat so he can take the boat, um, you know, to another country and escape the law that way. And so it is about this journey he's going on and all the different environments he's in. Again, this is a very low budget movie. They don't have a lot of money for sets and environments. So one way that man got around it is he shot on location a whole lot more. T-Men is a great example of that. T-Men is, is almost, you know, it, it, you, it's almost mind-boggling for the era how much of that is shot on location and how real it feels. And this and Raw Deal is very similar where, you know, you have these amazing locations. You have that house in the middle of the woods and you have that, that forest set uh, where they they're had the, you know, the fire and you have that um, – you know the, that fist fight in the fisherman's uh, shop, where like the net is in the foreground. So mm-hmm. like you see sort of the the cage in front of them. Basically, they're trapped by this, you yeah. know, as if they're still in prison. And it's a, that's what the film is about. The film is about this guy who he you know he says at the beginning he what he's excited about is that first breath of fresh air. Like he you know he can't breathe in prison, and it turns out he escapes. He still can't breathe, and it's what he has to escape is not prison. What he has to escape is. Uh, sort of the man he's become yeah. uh, in being a hardened criminal, and and his past to to a degree. So, like you have you have that great uh, set on the on the boat, uh, or is it the boat or the hotel that we, that he leaves uh, Claire Trevor in? 
Um, and she has that clock behind her. That's one of my favorite shots ever. <laughs> I love that shot. It's so over the top, but like it's it, it so fits good. the material. Yeah, and even her her narration never bothered me. And you know? the, and the tension between you know you have a lot of real locations, you have a lot of real urban environments, um, and you also have that dreamy score, and you have you know this over the top lighting and and uh, aesthetic and everything. It creates a really interesting thing where it feels uh, it feels unreal and it feels more real mm-hmm. at the exact same time. Yeah, and Raymond Burr is frequently shot from the waist up and is like he's filling the frame at times and like looming over things. And I think that I you know I think you can find that certainly in something that like Citizen Kane certainly doing a lot of low angle shots, but there's just really interesting choices. And you mentioned like just the the placement uh, and. Um, like to, when they're in the hotel room and the shot is basically like just the phone, you know, the phone is about to ring and the characters in the background. And it's just like, but he stays on the phone as is like, you know, Oh, something's going to happen here. What is she going to do? And you're, you're feeling the tension of the situation. And I felt that way throughout the whole movie. Like I was with these characters. Like I didn't think Dennis on the first viewing, I didn't think Dennis O'Keefe was that spectacular of an actor like i just kind of went eh, he's serviceable I, mean, I, I still don't believe he's a spectacular actor i think I just thought he was okay i think he is utilized well yeah, yeah. i think i think man somebody like sterling hayden would have been interesting well, for that against someone like sterling hayden would have been much more expensive <laughs> yeah well true true but you know i, I certainly um, grew to love everybody necessarily no not necessarily i'm trying to think when was um i'm trying to think when was sterling hayden blacklisted um because he was yeah. Well, uh, well, Asphalt he, Jungle was like 1950, right? So this would be... Okay, so, so that was after. After, after. It was after 1950. Right. right. That's the 1950. Well, well he, he named names. Mm. He named names to get off the blacklist. And and Hayden um, said later it was the greatest mistake he ever made. And he, he, uh, he meant it later. He said it drove him to drink. He said it was, it was an awful, awful thing that he did. He never forgave himself for doing that. Mm. Um. But yeah, maybe about the time that Hayden may have been more expensive, but you know, you, you had to get who you could afford. And Dennis Keith, uh, Dennis O'Keefe, who, who you could afford back then, he there, he is kind of lightweight, but I still think he's used well. Yeah, he's got a good um, face. Yeah. I mean, so much of what Dennis O'Keefe is going through psychologically is not based on his performance, but based on the two performances of the two female leads. Right. So, like, I think that sort of makes up for that because they're the one they, they're the most uh, I think they're the most interesting actors. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love Raymond Burr in this as this sort of like Laird Krieger kind of uh, oh, psychotic. Gosh. Yeah, he's creepy. Madman. But I do think the two female leads are the most interesting uh that's actors. a good analogy, Larry, Larry Krager. You know your movie. <laughs> of course he does. That's why he's here. <laughs> I, I love Larry, I love Larry Krager. Hangover Square is one of my all time favorites. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, Hangover Square, very good. Love it. Um, or Heaven Can Wait. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, but uh, I the other the other you want to talk about like other sort of surreal aspects of this film? What about that sequence where the cops are looking for an escaped murderer and he just sort of bursts into this home that they're in that they're sort of hiding out in a, a friend of theirs who lives in the forest. Oh right. And he's just like it's this totally unrelated subplot that is never addressed again. About a guy who killed his about wife. About this guy who killed his wife and he seems like he's out of his mind and he doesn't know what happened and it's this like absolutely chaotic moment. <laughs> where like, Wait, where is this movie going? And that guy just immediately gets shot and it's this, you know, it only exists uh to sort of 
bring a, a sort of uh, moral urgency to uh, you know Dennis O'Keefe's character, but it is such a strange choice to do so. Yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere, but I don't know. It's just to create temporary anxiety, wondering if you know the police will you know know that they're there or something. But it kind of resolves pretty quickly. Um, uh, I mean, the whole movie—it's a seventy-nine yeah, minute it film. It's, it flies it's, by. It's absolutely breathlessly paced. I think that's another sort of advantage of um, a lot of Anthony Mann's noir films. And that, I mean, that's part of just these poverty row films. They were programmers. They were designed to be on double bills. They weren't, you know, they weren't mm-hmm. sort of big films to stand on their own. So they were these very sm- uh, short running times. And that helps everything else because you don't, you know, uh, it, it's all about maximum impact and it's all about very quick, you know, what, how do we best get across an emotion very quickly through the cinematography um, yeah. you don't have a lot of time to linger on things. And I think that's part of why they hold up so well. Right. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of the, of the sort of triangle di- dynamic between characters, especially when you have, um, Marsha Hunt as Anne, who's still with us, believe it or not. Really? 103, I believe. Yeah. I just found that out today and was like, wow, she's now the oldest. Kirk Douglas died. Now it's Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's one more, isn't there, Sergio? Uh, Olivia, What's her name? Olivia, Olivia de Havilland is over a hundred. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Sydney uh, Poitier's in his nineties. I, did, I didn't oh, realize yeah, Olivia so, de Havilland was still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Olivia de Havilland, she lives in Paris. Mm-hmm. And she lives in Paris for years. She's over a hundred. I think she's a hundred and two now. Wow. No, but Marsha Hunt's memories of working on this really just centered on uh, man didn't really actively direct his actors he was so focused on uh lighting and camera placement and making sure everything was set because he had such trust in the actors like you can do your own thing you can you know i don't have to tell you what to do you got this and so he had yeah he had a lot of um yeah a lot of trust in his actors well you also sense that i mean it's also that he wasn't he wasn't necessarily overly concerned with their performances because unlike a lot of films that their performances were not where the meaning of the film was coming mm-hmm. from. It was okay, all about yeah, the, yeah. The, the photography. Right. Um, you know, as long as they said the words that were in the scripts, they would, they would be, you know, yeah. they would do their job. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, this is also, a great movie. Man comes from that school, um, like John Houston, like Raul Welch, where, okay, I hired, I put this person in this part because I know they can do the role. So I don't have to worry too much time about getting the nuances of the performance because I know they can deliver. And I think that is a big part of why uh, once he started making Westerns, once he started or even, you know, once he started making major, uh, you know, studio films like uh, Border Incident from M- for MGM or uh, uh, Side Street, uh, you know, in, in addition to all the Westerns. That there is an aspect of the films that improved considerably because he had access to such a uh, sort of a higher tier of actor. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, when you he was working for MGM, and by the way, he made a couple movies for MGM because the head of MGM at the time was run by Doris Schrary. He threw out Louis B. Mayer, and Doris Schrary went to high school with Anthony Mann. Really? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Mann dropped out. Uh, Schwery graduated and went on to some Ivy League school. But they but they knew each other in high school. So um, when Schwery saw that Mann, his old high school buddy, was making these incredible movies, he brought him over to MGM and said, "Hey, start making some films for us, including Side Street, Border Incident, Devil's Doorway." He made a couple. 
Yeah, and very similar to um, to 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 uh, Mildred Pierce. If I was teaching a class on lighting, this would be one of the movies I would show. Uh, they're just just these elaborate shadows, and certainly you expect that in in a film noir. But like even towards the end, and again, I'm not even sure if this is the transfer. But it's like it's so dark when when Raymond Burr is uh, pouring a glass of wine and then lighting those candles. And once they finally confront each other, and he says, oh, I never carry a gun, and then you don't see it. You actually don't see that he has a gun in that moment. And I thought, like, in terms of lighting, this movie is really phenomenal. Well, and the, Or the moment right before that within the fog is just, yeah, like, fog absolutely is just, unbelievable looking. I, yeah, I know. I couldn't believe it. It's like, wow, this is, this is not at all what I expected this to go. But, again, similar to the score, it just created this mood and this atmosphere in a way that's very enveloping and, and kind of creepy at times, but in a good way. So yeah, I'm just I'm I'm in awe of this movie. I I I would love to see it on the big screen. Has this played Noir City at all? You'd think like this might. I wonder if they. If, I don't. I wonder if there is a good print, uh, print or 4K master of this. Yeah, there should be. Well, it says it's on Blu-ray. I yeah. assume they had to get it from. They ha- there is some sort of high def master of it. Mm, right, right. Good. Good. Oh, Shall we move on? I, I think probably. So if, if we're talking about Raw Deal in terms of being a sort of a high watermark for his noirs and typical of his working relationship with cinematographer John Alton in that Poverty Row era, um, The Furies is a movie that is actually very atypical of his westerns. And I think it's uh, it's a I think it's a very good movie, but it's also a movie that uh, is it, it, it's, it feels like a, a stepping stone uh, where he is he's sort of dialing in how to uh you know how to keep directing his style in in a world where he's making films that are more complicated psychologically where he's telling stories that are more sprawling he's dealing with more interesting characters and he's dealing in you know but you know it's not just about maximum style anymore it it is about telling these uh more ambitious stories um, yeah, it's, it, I think he was inspired by Shakespearean or Greek tragedy. You know, well, it's based it's off of a novel. Greek tragedy, the Furies. It's definitely Greek tragedy. Yeah, yeah. When you when you have like the the patriarch character played wonderfully by Walter Houston, as always, uh, I could listen to that man speak for hours and hours and then and never get tired of it. Uh, this is yeah, it's got a little bit of everything. It's you know, it's a little western, a little noir, um, a lot of melodrama. Yeah, a lot of melodrama for sure. And, you know, carried by Barbara Stanwyck, who is just, you know, a force of nature as well she, she's been in the past. I mean, she was really great in, um, in uh, 40 Guns, Samuel Fuller's movie. And, uh, you know, I just I, I love just the dynamic shared between obviously, you know, they, they have a part. <laughs> Again, really brutal violence erupts at one point in this movie where I was like, damn, um, yeah. with scissors. Yeah, I know involving what you're scissors. talking about. So, even though the movie, the movie sort of foreshadows that early on in the beginning when she picks up a pair of scissors mm. uh, when her brother comes to see her. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and I go like, why would she, if you've never seen the film before or the first time you've ever seen the film, first time I ever saw it, I go like, what if she picked up that? Why would she pick up that? And then later, there's the payoff. Yeah, there's the payoff, right? right. So The Furies is about um, this woman, uh, uh, who, uh, Vance. yeah, that's, uh, uh yeah, right. Yeah. Vance. Sorry. Vance. I was, I was, I was struggling with the name, uh, Vance, who, uh, she sort of runs her father's ranch, um, 
Uh, he has a massive, uh, you know, stretch of land in New Mexico where he raises uh, cattle. Um, and she, it's called the Furies, and she has a very incestual, uh, very uh, sexually charged relationship with her father. Um, yeah, who, a little creepy. It's this love hate relationship where he, uh, she's the only man he admires, but she all, but he also just sort of confounds her every step of the way, and like. You know, is always trying to get the upper hand. So they have this power struggle that definitely is coded as uh, very sexual, and that sort mm-hmm. of informs her choice of men throughout the entire film. Well, yeah. there is that one scene when they're talking to each other, and their faces get very, very so, close. So close, close. yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, "Oh, go ahead and kiss her already." Right. Come on, exactly. <laughs> Yikes. Um, and there is so it's this very epic tale, and it's uh. Uh, I forget the name. The Greek. I'm. I am not educated in uh, the Greek myths at all. Neither but, uh, am I. But I. I it. I know there's one. <laughs> it's the story of Electra yeah. and her father, and that the house of of something or whatever. But at any rate, um, it's this you know tale about she you know she resents her father because her mother was uh, dying of an illness and you know he wasn't around at the time and he has all of this built up guilt from that. He sort of holds hmm. her mother's uh, old room as this sacred place. Meanwhile, she has this uh, she has this uh, sort of ambiguous uh, romance with uh, this uh, Mexican man who uh, lives on the land. Um, they call them squatters. Yeah, they call them squatters, but it's pretty clear that like not all of this land was obtained by TC, who's the name of Walter Houston's character. Not all this right. land was ob- obtained through uh, very uh, you know uh, good me. What's the word? Like it's it's it seems no, like he. he, he just- Right, exactly. And so there is this other interesting aspect to this movie uh, when you're looking at, you know, this is not necessarily, you know, Anthony Mann westerns were more psychological. He was not necessarily um, someone like John Ford who was looking at, you know, questioning the myth of America constantly. But this film does make you, you know, actively question, you know, when whose land is it really? You know, when you say. If you look at this as a you know um, as America, you're having people fighting over stuff that is maybe not theirs to begin with. Um, Very true. <laughs> so she has this sort of tortured relationship with this with this Mexican man who grew up. You know, they grew up together as friends, and he's in love with her, and she kind of loves him, but she can't quite bring herself to admit it, or you know, or allow herself to be. You know, it's just it's just not appropriate uh, socially, you know, and and the time and everything. So it's just. They have this uh, – there's this sort of romantic longing between them as she tries to look out for him as far as uh, not evicting him off the land and letting his family and others stay. But uh, So that adds more tension between her and her father. Um, and then there's this other man who comes in and – you know, this is this is a film where she's coded as very masculine, and the the way that there are often two women in Anthony Mann films who represent two different sides of the yeah. male main character. In this, it's the woman who has two men who represent sort of different sides of her, and there is this very shrewd, um, very calculating uh, gambler. Uh, what's the, what's his name? Uh, Wendell Corey plays the gambler, um, and and you know, she he. And her father have an absolutely hostile relationship. They're, they want to murder each other because her father took the, that man's father's land. Um, and it's the best stretch of land in, in all of the Furies. And so he is basically has dedicated his life into getting into a position where he can take it back. Um, and, of course, the fact that her father does not approve of this man it makes him very romantically appealing. <laughs> um, and, you know, so there is this sort of a... 
struggle between the three of them as she tries to get, you know, she tries to get this man and this man tries to use her. But at the same time, he, you know, he can't admit his feelings for her, but he leads her on. And what I, what all of this is to say is that it is very unlike any Anthony Mann movie that's come to this point where they, they had very simple stories. They were all about very propulsive forward movement. They were about men on the run. It was about someone getting into one situation, trying to escape, get into another. It was all about building of tension. This is a much more ambitious story. Yeah, there's a lot of factions, a lot of people involved that you sort of have to keep up with at times. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's not, uh, you know, I would not, this is definitely not his best Western and I wouldn't even necessarily call it entirely successful, though I do think it's a really good movie. And I think it does sort of show the limitations of the style of directing that he was working with at the time mm-hmm. where you can't, you know, you can't go for that high impact all the time when you're dealing with so much ambiguity. And we will see this movie is very stylistic. It looks fascinating. Um, I don't think it. I don't think John Alton was the cinematographer on this one. No, it was uh, Victor Milner. Yeah, Victor but it, Milner. But it has a fascinating look. There's a lot of day for night where the whole the movie is a the sky is a dark gray the whole movie, and it's mm-hmm. very hard to tell what time of day it ever is. It feels like the same way that all the characters are sort of trapped in these uh, in between states. Then they're um, the the move the. the the land itself is like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. It um, sort of it, reflects where they're at. It's a very hostile landscape. You know, there's a lot of very beautiful shots of, of the environments in many of man's films, but here the this it feels like a prison <laughs> in the same way. Um, and it feel and there's a lot of high style, but it often it often feels like a movie at odds with itself. Um, it feels because he uh, if you if you look at the later westerns, especially like the ones he made with like. Jimmy Stewart, he does rely less on the camera work and more on the actors sure. to do things. And this one, it's probably why I responded to those even more. Yeah, this this one is it's it's sort of in conflict uh, with itself, including uh, part of that is his love of antiheroes uh, and his love of men who are not all good or not all bad. Sort of extends to TC, even though. I guess maybe this could just be viewing it with modern eyes. Like TC is an absolutely reprehensible character and it feels like the film tries to redeem him in a way that he doesn't necessarily deserve yeah. at the end. Yeah. That's how I felt too, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a movie that, um, isn't right. Isn't, I think you hit it. It's in conflict with itself. It does. It's not able to, I don't think it's a terrible film at all. I think it is a weak picture. But I think that um, it's a movie that ha- is, is rather confused about the motivations of the characters. Mm. For example, um, when Barbara Stanwyck's character finally gets her revenge on her father, uh, basically by buying up all his IOUs, at the very end of the film, it's like they're all buddy buddies again. Yeah, that didn't that yeah. didn't sit well with and me. Like, well, that's not. I mean, she hates him. Yeah, the gambler doesn't like him. And but then they're all buddy buddies. Now that twists at the end, uh, at the very end. But still, I go like, well, why are they friends when it, for the rest of the movie we were seeing how much they hated each other, hated each other. Um, Wendell I think is terrible. I, I never liked him as an actor. He has sort of like this cold eye bland look about him he really he's he's stiff he's really wasn't in the film every time i see this picture and i've seen it a couple of times i always wish kirk douglas would have played that role <laughs> he would no, he definitely would have been better yeah right because 
you don't understand what she sees in him mm-hmm. because you're because she's the guy she wants to marry, and then finds out there's a twist that happens. No, he really doesn't care about you. So why are you together at the end? Because clearly he's easy to be bought off. But I but I don't understand because he is such a stiff in that movie, and um, so wooden that you need somebody who's more masculine, more vibrant, has more energy. And I could see Kirk Douglas turn into that role, and I could see any woman, particularly Barbara Stanwyck, and they had made pictures before together, Barbara Stanwyck really going for a guy like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't I, understand I, Wendell Corey at all. For me, Wendell, for me, Wendell Corey, it's not a good performance by any means, but for me, it kind of works. He never gave a good performance. He always gave right. the same performance. But for me, it kind of works because it very it makes it very clear that what she is attracted to is making her father mad. That is the that is the primary motivator. Yeah, that makes and sense. of course, by the end, when they get back together, you know that it doesn't it doesn't work. And there is a lot about the ending that maybe feels compromised by I don't I don't know what the source material, the original novel. I don't know how that ends or whatever. But it does. And there are a couple other um, westerns that uh, like I guess I feel like the very end of the Naked Spur feels a little bit like this too. That's, where what, that's what I felt. There's yeah. sort of a it, we go to such dark places that the happy ending feels like yeah. it feels like totally out of nowhere. And plus, you know, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's character is essentially going to just be a traditional, you know, mother figure in a family structure at the end. So there, so this is a very interesting movie. And we actually, one of the categories for, I, I talked earlier about my partner doing the queer film challenge for this year. One of the categories is watch a movie with Barbara Stanwyck. Cause Barbara Stanwyck, you know, she her the way gender is presented in a lot of her roles. Uh, it, it kind of runs the gambit. She, you know, hmm. and in this movie, she's very masculine. And yeah. when I first saw this movie, I wasn't really, I don't think I was really thinking about it all the way. And in my mind, you know, she's very able. She's very tough. She's, uh, you know, she's very competent. She's wearing, you know, slacks in almost every scene and she's wearing dark clothes. And, you know, I always read that as like, oh, cool. She's like this badass feminist or whatever. But I think actually what this movie is, is it's sort of looking her. She's almost a, a tragic figure where she is. Like the masculine woman doesn't have a place, and it and the movie is about her sort of finding her place by becoming more feminine and fill, huh. filling a more feminine role at the end. Like, you know that there's that well, first scene, then. the first <laughs> no, no, I know, and it's like you know, it's so of she's the fiercely time. independent. Like she's going on the train and taking care of business, and like yeah, go get him. But you know? <laughs> at the same time, the first time that she has a scene with Wendell Corey, where he, you know he slaps her, and you know True. she doesn't know how to yeah. handle yeah. it or deal with it. Yeah, that's rough. That like, is. That is one of the oddest. When he comes into the hotel room, he slaps her around. He almost drowns her in a bowl, in a wash bowl, and she's turned on by it. <laughs> so, you know. I mean, in so many, in so many ways, she's like coded. It, like there is something, there is something kind of queer about this movie because she is coded so masculine that their romance does almost read as this is how if this movie was about two men this is how their relationship would play out is much more violent and physical and stuff like that hmm. but i don't i don't i do not think this is a feminist film by any stretch of the imagination i but it is like a fascinating film in that regard and i do yeah. you know it I, it it doesn't doesn't read as feminist in the way that johnny guitar does no no and i do think that this is i think that you can learn a lot about a director as much by watching where they stumble and struggle as much as where they succeed. And I do think you can sort of see the kind of movie that Anthony Mann wasn't capable of making, you know, and I, and I, not that he, not, this is a bad movie, but like you, you see that when you compare this to the naked spur Winchester 73 or man from Laramie, like 
you see where his wheelhouse is by seeing where it clearly is not. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's clear. I think it's clear in this movie that I, I don't know what his his opinions about the film were was, but I think it's very clear that he knew the kind of films he wanted to make after he made The Fury. Yes, I think the theories. I would like to read the novel because I'm almost sure the movie was heavily compromised by the studio. It feels that way, and yeah. also by the production code. And um, I am sure that man. Um, I mean, he, he did the picture because at this time it was the biggest budgeted film he had ever done, uh, with you know two major two major stars in it. Um, even though he had done the well, no, he, he hadn't yet. Oh, this is the same year he worked with Robert Taylor in in Devil's in Devil's Doorway. So he had broken through, and now was doing say a list material, but um, that comes at a price. And I think that afterwards, he definitely had more control, particularly over the subject matter, and particularly over characterization of. The, the characterization of the major characters in his movie, mm. what he wanted them to say, what he wanted them to convey in his picture. I think, yeah, I, I think probably it's a good learning experience as far as he is going to make movies that are very dark and very subversive and go in some really risque places. But there are ways to get away with that within the studio system, and there are ways you can't get away with that within the studio system. And I think yeah. too much of the Furies is it's it's too difficult, it's too strange, it's too unusual. And it called attention to it where you watch something like Winchester 73, you could see it as, oh, it's a rousing adventure tale. But there's already there's so many other elements in it that that are like way more morally ambiguous. And the things he does with Jimmy Stewart's characters throughout his career in terms of uh, challenging the uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington image that Jimmy Stewart had and sort of revealing this dark, desperate uh, underbelly. You know, he he found he found uh, material that he was more able to smuggle that past <laughs> what the studios wanted him to be making. Yeah. But at the same time, like I mentioned when we did our um, favorite films of 2019 episode, I'm respond. I'm realizing I'm responding more and more to the actors in, in, in film in general. Like I, obviously I love writing. I love cinematography. I love every facet of film, but sometimes what carries a, a movie for me, even if it's incredibly flawed or I don't feel emotionally um, you know, connected to it, I, yeah, I, the acting in this is f- pretty remarkable, and I just love watching Walter Houston and Barbara Stanwyck on screen, and I want to watch more of them. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the highlight here. I mean, the, the story is great, and you and you and you do you do feel something uh, throughout, and you do, you do see the ultimate comeuppance, and you do see like this masquer- masquerade of masculinity being taken apart uh, by the end, more or less, because you know he. Basically, he loses all his power, uh, and you know, is, is, and he crumbles. And certainly, the revenge from that uh, that the mom what, she shoots him mm-hmm. at the very end. Right. There, that's that's right. pretty powerful. She is she, she is like secretly my favorite character in the whole movie. There's the part where <laughs> they laugh. There again, another gunfight on a mountain. There's the yeah. part where the, he's leading the assault on the home, right. and she is sort of like just whispering to herself, like, "Come out, come on out." Come, yeah. And she is so that. intense and brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, that part's so good. Uh, you, sure. You've never seen a middle-aged woman holding a rifle be more scary. <laughs> yeah. No, the confrontations in this are really great. And, yeah, I just uh, 
I think I felt more uh, an emotional response to Raw Deal and those characters than than what happens and what plays out in this. But at the same time, I think it's absolutely worth seeing. And like you said, it's interesting to see where he can falter, you know, in, in terms of not being as strong or capable. And this was like early on, you know, with, with before he got into the Jimmy Stewart run. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of which, we could probably talk about some uh, other films he made. Now he 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 had sort of three distinct periods of his career. You know, mm-hmm. he had noir, and we talked about western as well. But what we haven't talked about is the uh, epics he made at the end of his career. Indeed, and there's quite yeah. a few. Yeah, he he um, the late late fifties to early sixties, he had a bad run of luck. Um, he had made say, eight movies with Jimmy Stewart. He made a lot of films in the 1950s. He was insanely prolific. Uh, ten of them alone were westerns between 1950 and 1958. Ten were westerns alone, and there were other pictures. Uh, but he and Stewart had a bitter falling out over a movie called Night Passage, which Stewart then made with another director because um, Stewart got tired of playing those deeply disturbed characters and he wanted to play a lighter person and so in the movie he goes around with an accordion thing according to about railroad <laughs> and but he he uh he and man had a bitter falling out and he never spoke to each other again uh it was very ugly and then uh he made a film called cimarron for mgm a big a remake of a western pioneer story that mgm had made back in the early 30s that film turned out to be a disaster. He was fired from post-production, and then they hired another director to shoot new scenes. And then he followed that with Spartacus. And then I said he got fired up with Spartacus of the first week. Then he got upset. And with uh, Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren and Herbert Long uh, about Elsid Delors, which is with the, the English translation, uh, who drew out the Moors from Spain. And that follows from Royal Fall of the Roman Empire mm. for Samuel Boston, which was a huge flop at the time. But if you see that picture, I, I tell people you must see Fall of the Roman Empire because um, they built Imperial Rome on Bronston Studios in, in Madrid. And I'm telling you, there are shots in that movie which will down you. Uh, they built Rome. And wow. there is one scene where uh, actually in a way the movie is a remake of 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 uh, Gladiator. It's the same characters huh. and a lot of the same plot points. You know. Sure, as that a makes matter sense. of fact as a matter of fact, DreamWorks briefly brought the rights to Fall of the Ruin Empire when Gladiator came out. Because they didn't want people to see the picture and say, "Wait a minute!" Then that the, the, the final scene in Gladiator is a is a straight out ripoff of the final scene in Fall of the Roman Empire. So they had to cover they had to cover their asses. Yeah, the wow. hero lives in Fall of the Roman Empire. It's the same thing. He's finding the emperor and the, and all the guards around them. Same thing. Okay, but there's a scene where. Uh, Commodus or Commodus, the emperor who is played the Fall of Empire by Christopher Plummer, enters Rome, and you see thousands of extras, and you can see all the way to the far end of the frame. You can see buildings. I mean, they built Rome. 
They don't do that anymore. That's the way you used to make movies. They'll be CGI now. They, they spent money building this. And when he's traveling through these streets, he's like, oh, my God, the money they spent on this picture. And what's the movie about? It's about an emperor who played by uh, Alec Guinness, who is mm. dying, and he doesn't want to leave his empire to his no-good son, so he wants to leave it to his commanding general, played by Stuart Boyd. Just like there's a rancher who doesn't want to leave his ranch to his no-good son, so he wants to leave it to the foreman of his ranch. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a western. It's a western. That's what Fall of the Room is. It's a big, elaborate western about... Uh, the conflict between the foreman, or in this case, the uh, general, and the uh, emperor's son, who wants the empire, who wants the ranch. So my question is, can it, does Anthony Mann's style like come through a production that large? Can he still make his in personal way, impact it on doesn't. it? doesn't. He had to adapt, because El yeah. uh, Cid, and, and also his last movie, his war film, Men on a Mission movie, uh, with Kirk Douglas, uh, uh, the uh, heroes of Telemark, they pile largesse upon largesse. And hmm. visually, they're stunning. I mean, there are some shots, in, particularly for the Roman Empire, which makes you go, oh my God. He still was a visual stylist. There is no question about it. Even in the more intimate scenes, even in the larger scenes, um, it, he still knew where to put the camera. He still knew, and he's got some great action sequences. For example, uh, there's a great fight scene, battle scene between the Roman soldiers and the Huns, which uh, basically, which takes place halfway in the movie, which Ridley Scott greatly stole for the beginning of Gladiator. You know? Hmm. Um, but, but still, he was a visual stylist. Yeah, he had to adapt. Because now we're talking a lot of money. Now we're talking in ultra Panavision. Now we're talking um, thousands of extras. The location shooting in Spain. Most of these films were shot totally in location in Spain with the Samuel Boston Studios. So, yeah, he had to adapt, but still, they're still dealing with those themes of dysfunctional families. And psychologically tortured heroes. Particularly... Uh, Commodus or Commodus, Emperor Commodus. It's interesting. Uh, he, uh, a twisted, bizarre relationship. All mm-hmm. those things are still in these movies. It's a, he made another a war movie, Men in War, and that also is basically a western. That basically is plays like one of his westerns, where it's about a long journey. It's these men in the Korean War uh, who are sort of hmm. trapped behind. They're cut off by the enemy, and they're trapped behind enemy lines, and they're trying to get back. Um, and the, the Koreans in that movie are more or less the exact same depictions as like you would get Native Americans in Anthony Mann movies where they're sort of more of this like chaotic force of nature and the real danger comes from the infighting between the men, you know, on the mission. Um, so I guess he, he, he found a way to make all kinds of Westerns. <laughs> yeah, it sounds yeah, like Yeah, he it. did. I mean, I, I mean, oh my God, he, I think he made like 20 movies during that period <laughs> from 1950 to 1960. Maybe more. I mean, he was insanely prolific at that time. Um, yeah, and, I'm not, right. If you, I'm not a ahead. huge. I'm not a huge like epic. Uh, you know, I, I just don't know if I'd get into the fall of the Roman Empire movie story. But then I'd look at the cast and I'm like, Alec Guinness, James Mason, Christopher Plummer, Omar Sharif. I'm like, 
Oh my god. I mean, I'm like, was in it for about five minutes. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, still, that's pretty. It's a pretty good lineup there that he got. It's uh, a, right. well, the other funny thing. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the reasons I didn't. I, I mean, I'm also not a, a fan of historical epics. I perhaps yeah. just haven't seen the one that would make me. You know, there are movies like I do like Spartacus quite a bit, and I there yeah, are good. there are moments of Ben Hur I like, even though I think overall I'm not a big fan of that movie. But uh, one thing that made me no, that feels a stiff. It's a stiff. Yeah. So, but one thing that made me yeah, one thing that made me avoid watching them is like for me, part of what makes what part of what it feels to me essential to Anthony Mann's work is that standard ratio four three, the way he mm. composes frames, the way he goes for depth, the way and I and like thinking about and I I I ended up looking up like did he do widescreen movies other than the epics? What happened? Oh, yeah, and oh, yeah, Man, yeah, yeah. And you said hilarious. yeah, and I I did I've seen it, but I did not remember that. Do, do you remember Jim? Like, did yeah. the compositions feel different than? I'd, I think so. Yeah, I mean, certainly watching on the TV here, I I, I noticed the difference, but. You know, transitioning into Man of the West, that's shot in gorgeous CinemaScope. Is it? And, you know, it's shot by the same guy who did Gone with the Wind. So, so, that, so yeah, tell us about Man of the West. Because I, I, I just heard that like, this is sort of the culmination and something like, I guess, I mean, we're talking about he's essentially made westerns and other genres, but this was supposed to be, like, I guess the final nail in the coffin in terms of, like, what he had yeah, to say about the him. West. I mean, in terms of westerns, right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart really wanted this role that uh, Gary Cooper uh, wound up with because I think he's just he's better cast, you know, in terms of like yeah, playing. And they have, but they have already split up by then. Right? Yeah, yeah, and the, you know, Gary Cooper plays stoic really well. Um, you know, he's basically this reformed outlaw on his way across Texas, and he's traveling by train so he can go hire a school teacher for the community. And he accidentally, you know, meets up with his old gang because they're robbing the train, and. Uh, they're on the way to like stage this final hold up this again. It's kind of, <laughs> it's funny to have watched uh, raising Arizona and wild at heart recently because it's essentially it's this character who's like, I don't want to be this person, but these other people are making me this person that I want to get rid of that. I want to move away from. And that's essentially what this mm-hmm. movie ultimately becomes is like, Oh crap. Well, I just got involved with my old gang and they want me to be a part of this heist. And I have to do it, and I don't have a choice. And uh, along for the ride are um, uh, Julie London. She's like basically just like a you know a saloon entertainer, but apparently yeah, she was a very popular singer at the time. Yeah, yeah. And this is a non-singing role for her. Uh, there's Arthur O'Connell, who kind of plays kind of like a con man of sorts, I guess. Uh, but he's kind of goofy. He's you know he's he's there to make you know little commentaries throughout. But uh, it, yeah, there's just something about stories like Unforgiven that I really really get into, where people think that they're through with the past, but the past catches up to them, and they have to confront yeah. it, and they have to basically figure out, well, am I going to be the person that I said I'm no longer, and here I am, and caught in this like gray area but you know you can't you can't escape your own nature you can't escape your own past uh but there's also some some moral ambiguity like whether or not it's okay to be violent when the when the circumstances call for it and we talked about the incredible fight in raw deal it's there's one in here that's just as beautifully staged and shot it goes on for a long time to where you're like damn this is like they live (laughs) almost Uh, (laughs) where it's just like going on and on and on but i love it and then again there's no score to accompany that uh, but I mean, 
I think Gary Cooper is remarkable in this movie. I think he's, you know, turns in a really great performance and it has your traditional kind of final shootout between him and Lee J. Cobb on a mountain (laughs) top uh, of sorts. And Lee J. Cobb is just, oh, he is so good as a villain in this. I mean, I think that, well, the screenplay was written by Reginald Rose, who did uh, 12 Angry Men. And that was, again, one of my first experiences was, you know, seeing a black and white movie was 12 Angry Men. And I could tell, like, some of the dialogue in this, yeah, it it, it sort of rang true. And coming from Lee J. Cobb, who is, uh, you know, just remarkable in this, just him and Gary Cooper going at it. Because he sort of plays, like, the surrogate father figure that he grew up with. Um, And he's very King Lear-like. And he's very intense and confrontational. Um, and then he does something really, really horrible at the end of this movie, and you just want to see the comeuppance, and you get that, and it's a you know a really good yeah. catharsis at the end, and yeah. I just ate this movie up. I loved it. Yeah, Man of the, West. Man of the, the Man of the West almost kind of predates Sam Peckinpah because yeah, also yeah, totally. Gary, the character is a man who's out of time. Yeah, ride the high country is kind of like in that right. vein. Yeah, they're man, they're man out of time. Their time right. has passed. Right, and there's a change coming. And they don't know really where they're going to fit in in this new world that's coming, the world of the airplane and the automobile, which will be coming in just a few years later. So, um, and the thing about Gary Cooper, but Gary Cooper may have not been like the greatest actor mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. But he was good but at what he did. He was such an extraordinary presence yeah. in a movie. Yeah. And when he got the right script and the right director, he was amazing. And he could do Eternal really well. I mean, he couldn't do what Jimmy Stewart would do. Like in those movies when Jimmy Stewart gets those crazed eye look, you know, possessive look when he's after somebody like in those Anthony Mann westerns. Uh, But he could eternalize hurt and suffering and pain and do it really well. Agreed. And uh, this is really one of his last movies before his death. So um, um, there's also sort of like a sort of poignancy. When you see movies, he he died in 61. So when he made films in the late 50s or so, 59, there's a poignancy in all his in all his work at the time because he was ill. He knew it. He knew yeah. it was going to be around long. So um, um, he just kept making movies. And in every film, it became sort of deeper and richer in his performance because this is a guy who lived a life and had experienced everything. And he put that into his character. For sure. No, this one I highly recommend. I want to talk about Border Incident. Um, yeah, so which I didn't get to and I want to. Border uh, Incident is one of the this – is, this also feels like a transitionary film in that it feels half noir, half western. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know the story of the making of it, but it feels to me like MGM wanted their own T-Men. Um, it opens with a similar uh, narration and a sort of docudrama attempt to – you know, we're going to show you the procedural of how these two federal agencies are working together, um, both from one from, you know, one agent from Mexico, one agent from America. And they're trying to track down these men who are uh, smuggling, uh, you know, migrant workers into the country and then killing them afterwards and taking their wages. And right. one, one of the interesting things about this movie is that it is not about it has no anxiety whatsoever about illegal immigration. It's totally on the side of the men who illegally immigrate into America to work. It understands why they do it and understands hmm. the situation they're in. There is no sense of like, isn't it, you know, there's no sense of, well, maybe 
if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have been killed. It's all about we need to track down who is killing these men. And it's um and it's in a like T Men, it's an undercover movie where Ricardo Montalban goes undercover as a uh, migrant worker and uh gets sort of into this pipeline where they're smuggling people across the border. Um and it is just absolutely breathless, nonstop nail biting. Uh the 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 it, you know, he's on the verge of being discovered basically from the very start. Uh, every time, you know, they see his hand, they're checking the hands to make sure they're actually migrant workers. And he's, you know, he's a federal he's an agent. He does not have that rough hands or whatever. So there, there's a moment where the, all the criminals know that he is not who he says he is. And, but you, but he doesn't know that they've found him out yet. And you see them planning like to tighten around him. And then he slips out of that one. And it is just really, really exciting and it is you know and and in times it's a full-blown action movie it has the you know it has stunt work in it uh there there's a scene where you know there there the ricardo montalban is in a truck with the rest of the migrant workers and he tears a hole in the side of the canvas you know they're in the bed and he like crawls out on the side and it is like a scene from raiders of the lost ark like and it is and a lot of those kinds of sequences you would expect them to be shot using a lot of you know they're low frame rate so it's all sped up but it looks like it is going at a at a 24 frames per second it looks dangerous and it you know and there the sequence where he climbs over the side and then attacks the driver and throws the driver out and then the driver's trying to get back in and he smashes his fingers in the window like Ooh. it feels like a modern action sequence and it's really exciting and um you know the one of the other interesting twists about this movie is Ricardo Montalban who plays the Mexican you know agent he is actually the lead there uh him and uh, uh George, Murphy George Murphy are the two and George oh. Murphy you would assume because it's a film from 1949 you would assume that the white american actor would be the one who would be the lead but there is a moment where he dies and it is so long and drawn out and it's so brutal that he he basically uh is stuck on on the ground he gets shot and they are driving a thresher over him and it is so. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's called. It's called a harrow. It's a harrow. Okay, and but it is just like a a o w. It's a harrow. It's a it's a it's a device which has circular blades which digs which digs plows into the into the ground. Right. It's right. a farm. Wow. He's a farming equipment, and it this in the sequence. Right. Ricardo Montalban uh, is at a distance, and him and another sort of migrant worker who is aiding him see this happening but he is he is powerless to stop it from happening he doesn't have his gun on him he doesn't have any way to run in and intercede he would get killed too and you see it and it just goes on and on it cuts back and forth between you know the the vehicle and and George Murphy and you see it getting closer and closer and they're in the same shot so the blades are in the foreground and you are like okay how is he going to escape how is he going to get out of this clearly some last minute something is going to happen and he's going to be saved but no George Murphy gets destroyed by these you know circular saws and that is how he exits the film and it is up to now to Ricardo Montalban to save the day and it's like it's a shocking moment of violence it's also shocking in that the person you would assume is the main character just because of the you know the politics of the day and everything is suddenly revealed not to be it's own, it's you know it's it's much later in the movie but it's not that dissimilar from like Janet Leigh's death in Psycho where it's mm. It's this sudden twist and suddenly we're, you know, we're, we, you know, the person we thought was the lead character is no longer the lead character. Um, Ricardo Montalban, you know, then goes on to run and, you know, he's trying to get help and then he accidentally goes to the wrong house and (laughs) the person whose house he goes to to call the police is in on, you know, the criminal enterprise. So she holds him up and 
the movie is so exciting and it's so thrilling and it is the it is sort of the side street is also a terrific film that had a considerable budget and looks terrific but for my money border incident is sort of the uh sort of the peak of him and john alton working together almost every shot in border incident is absolutely astounding looking it's super stylistic it fits their style really well because there are so many different what about that opening scene that opening scene in Border. Oh my God! It's, it's I know it's so because and they're in these migrant workers they get killed and then they just get thrown into quicksand and their bodies are like literally swallowed by the earth and there is oh, this wow. like you know it's it is a it is a Hollywood film it is an MGM film from 1949 so it is not going to be a leftist you know screed about uh you know about the destructive uh you know nature of imperialist nature of America and stolen land and all that so it's like. It's not necessarily going all that way, but it is like striking that your sympathy is fully with the uh, Mexican men who are dying and that they just literally get swallowed into the country. And then, and then that like the that end, poor, poor cow in the Furies. And at the end, it is, you know, Ricardo Montalban is only trying to save his fellow countrymen, these other Mexican migrant workers. He's not, he's not trying to save any white Americans or anything. He is trying to save his countrymen. And in the end, he is saved by them. And it's like, it's. <laughs> Uh, you know, just in terms of identity politics, it is a really unusual move for a film of that era yeah, on sure. top of a movie that is already just one of the most exciting movies ever made um, and that genuinely feels in a lot of the action sequences um, and the pacing like it feels very ahead of its time. Well, slap me in the face for not having seen it. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'll eventually. Well, I, I have I have a DVD of it. You want to borrow it? I just the first time I ever saw this picture. I agree with you. Thinking, okay, 1949, okay, the white guy's going to be the hero, the, Mex- the Mexican cop is going to be killed. Surprise! Nice. Um, they don't even dare do that today. That's due to Dorschwery, who was running MGM at the time. And Dorschwery, when he took over the studio from Louis B. Mayer, he wanted MGM to be more up-to-date. And Dorschwery was an unabashed liberal. Uh, Louis B. Mayer was a hardcore conservative. And under Dorschwery, you got films like um, um, gosh, um, Blackboard Jungle and mm. Asphalt Jungle oh, and right. movies such yeah. as a uh, Border Incident. And um, that op- the opening scene is day for night and it's shot so brilliantly that the figures are practically silhouettes against the background. It's a, it's John Alton, it is an amazingly shot movie. Um, and George Murphy, which is interesting, because George Murphy, uh, this was his career was already waning at this time. He was a song and dance guy. He was a musical, <laughs> um, like comedies. So this was a huge change of pace for him to play this tough guy uh, who basically tries to go undercover to get the um, to break up this this group. Can I tell you one thing that always makes you laugh in this movie? Sure. It's an unintentional joke. Okay. There's a scene in the movie where um, Ricardo Montalban is trying to, um, yeah, I think it's Ricardo Montalban. He, he goes in this bar uh, and try to make contact, and there's this doctor. He's like a German doctor, you know, has a German accent, and uh, who's part of this group, right? That part is played by Sig Rugman, and Sig Rugman is a longtime character, a comic character actor, uh, German or Austrian. He's in, he's in um, A Night of the Opera. He's the big impresario. Oh, right. Yes. Herman okay. Gottlieb. 
Yeah, Gottlieb. Right, he plays her in Gottlieb. So there's a scene where he's talking to Malkaban, and the line is, why don't you go to the police? But because he has that comic German accent, it comes up like this. Why don't you go to the police? And it <laughs> fucks me up. That line, he, it always, I think of Herbert Gottlieb. It's Herbert Gottlieb, that's where yeah. he is. Now he's helping illegal money. <laughs> that's funny. Well, when, we, funny. Do, when you, we do Bill, Billy Wilder, he'll come you up. You mentioned okay. George Murphy being a song and dance man primarily. That's not unlike uh, Dick Powell in The Tall Target. Which yeah, is exactly. A, good call. Another because undercover thriller. Yeah, that's a good one. It takes but, place on a train. But, but yeah, border incident. That sh- yeah, when, when he's killed by it's a herald. He's killed by the herald. And you see the camera is on the ground and we see George Murphy getting closer and closer. Like you see, he's going to reach through the screen. Like, and, and they go like, he's not going to get killed, is he? No. Oh, no. He, wow, he did. <laughs> because he's always pleading for help. He's always like being the audience. Help me. You know? Yeah. yeah. A- so uh, what, what other uh, Anthony Mann film would you like to talk about, Sergio? Um, hold on a um, I, know you, well, I, I yeah. know you mentioned Reign of Terror. I'm kind of curious about that one. But if you have another. Oh, well, Reign of Terror, we can talk about it briefly. But I said it sure. is, it is, the, um, it is a, a film noir movie. It's set in France, during, during the French Revolution uh, with Robert Cummings, Richard Behars, and Arlene Dahl. And, and um, Robert Cummings plays a guy who's part of a group who wants to, uh, to end... Um, uh, the reign, the reign of terror by Robespierre. So he kills an executioner who's on his way to do some work for Robespierre and takes his place. And this movie is filled with some incredible suspense, suspense sequences, mm. just like um, uh, Border Incident. You know, I mean, I mean, it's filled with them for a movie that's only maybe about eighty nine minutes long. It just filled with them. And then what happens is that uh, it turns out that Rothbier has a book, a black book, which lists the names of all the people he plans to execute. So the idea is that if Cummings can find that book and expose it to the public, it'll bring down the end of Rothbier. Um And once the, I think John Alton, yeah, John Alton's cinematographer on that, it was shot on a limited budget. On uh, existing street on sixteen sets, but stylistically it is a knockout. And um, a, a lot of use of ceilings. We see the ceiling a lot in lo- in a lot of these movies. Yeah. The, the characters and enclosed in clamped quarters areas, as if the walls are closing in on them all the time. Um, and it's also the only movie where I guess at the very final scene, Napoleon makes a cameo. <laughs> you, know, you know, where after everything is resolved, and one of this character who's played by Albert uh, Arnold Moss, who's also in Border Incident, uh, who played both ends of the game, and he's a survivor at the at the end. He's talking to this guy. We only see his back, and um, at, at the at, you know the end, they're having the discussion, and um, Moss says to the guy, "What's your name?" And the guy says, "My name is Bonaparte." Napoleon Bonaparte. And Ma said, Bonaparte, I'll remember that. You may go far with it. It's a delight. It's really fantastic. And like I said, shocking violence. You know, Richard Basehart, the worst year, being shot in the face close up. Uh, I mean, we see the bullet and we see it and we see it's almost a splattering of blood over his face. I mean, it was his mouth, his hand covering the wound. 
um, uh, Arlene Dahl being tortured with hot irons. Um, th- there's some there's some uh, brutal stuff in this picture. You know, um, it, uh, man, like I said, we talked about before. Man loves to use violence for shock effect. I do. I have to talk about one of his one of his uh, westerns uh, with Jimmy Stewart. And since I just saw it day before yesterday, it's so fresh in my mind. I have to talk about Winchester 73. Absolutely. Which is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, which, um, uh, the first Western they, they made together uh, for universal pictures. It's, it's a, um, it's a simple revenge movie. Once again, about, um, Jimmy Stewart is trying to track the guy, track down the guy who killed his father, who as revealed at the end, we find out what's his brother, played by Stephen McNally. We don't know that for most of the movie. But what happens is that in the beginning of the movie, they compete in a shooting contest for this rare Winchester 73 rifle. Uh, the, the premise is that Winchester, uh, every thousand issues of a rifle, they make one that is so perfect, they don't sell it. It's given as a gift. So... Um, Jimmy Stewart wins the contest, and of course McNally beats up, beats him up, and steals it from him. And then we follow the passage of this rifle as it goes from McNally to a gun dealer to a Sioux warrior chief to the fiance of Shirley Winters to an outlaw back to Stephen McNally, and we do follow the progress of Jimmy Stewart trying to find his gun. And, but also the journey of this gun. And the message is that how violence is a part of the founding of this country of the West. Yeah. Because a rifle is used constantly to kill people from place to place or used to try to kill people from place to place. It's almost an, it's it's almost an object of erotic charge. Like it's how people (laughs) see it and they get aroused by it. Yeah, for sure. You're right. You're absolutely right. That's a very good point because when people hold this gun, they they get turned on. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it. so perfect. Like, oh, wow, look at this. Even Tony Curtis in a in a small unbuilt yeah, car. That's a little weird. Car. <laughs> wow, look at this. You know, everybody, all the men, the men get a charge when they hold this rifle. Like it's 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 the holy grail. It's sacred. It's something else. Yeah. And um, but it is the history of violence. This is what the movie is about. It's about the history. Uh, not saying that this was the inspiration for Cronenberg, but this movie is the history of violence. How violence and it transferred from person to person in the founding of the West, this country which was based on violence. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you know, the actor. Uh, as I was watching this, I'm like. Where have I seen John McIntyre before? Where have I seen this guy? This guy is so familiar to me. But but do you know what what I recognized him from? <laughs> Again, this what? is going back to what I talked about earlier for you know, like, oh, my first experience with Kirk Douglas was tough guys. Uh John McIntyre was uh was the was the villain in a movie called Cloak and Dagger. 
And I'm like, oh, God, that guy is so cool. He's such a good actor. But it was just funny, like, thinking back, oh, wow, yeah, I had no idea who he was. And then I'm seeing him in this classic Western, and just, yeah, he's he's memorable. Everybody, yeah, just just the idea of, like, this traveling gun going from place to place. There are a lot of, so there, it's, it's a story structure. I don't know if this was the first. It wouldn't surprise me if this was the first film to have the story structure. There have a lot of been films since, uh, you know, everything from The Red Violin to, you know, something like War Horse. Like, and there was this really bad movie called Twenty Dollar Bill, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like an Indian. Yeah, movie. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, so there are a lot of films that have taken this sort of story structure, but like the sophistication of Winchester seventy three, how people go in and out, and how you know, and how the coincidences, and and how storylines get dropped and then picked up again, and mm-hmm. like it is so, and it's especially when you compare it to the stuff that uh, Anthony Mann was making, you know, in the early part of his career in Poverty Row. Like it is such an incredible script. It is like it's so yeah. it's so rich and it's so deep and it's so layered um, that I like even films that it inspired. I don't think anything has ever touched it um, in terms of combining both the vi- individual vignettes and telling all these different character stories with also telling one complete overarching story and still ha- being exciting and thrilling, you know, and it's, you know, and I packs all this in in under 100 minutes. Yeah. And I was expecting when I first watched it, well, this is going to be the Jimmy Stewart show. You know, and it's going to be him with this gun the whole time. But once he gets separated from it, we go to all these different places. I just went, man, talk about subverting my expectations in the best way. And yeah, yeah. this is really and also, powerful. This is, a film, this is a film that changed Hollywood history, business mm. history. I'll tell you why. Because when the film was made, uh, Jimmy Stewart was, a, a, of course, a big star at the time. And his agent was a guy by the name of Lou Wasserman, who later became very, very powerful in Hollywood. Uh, basically the character that Robert De Niro plays in Casino. Because hmm. at the end of that movie, uh, Robert De Niro is made up to look just like Lou Wasserman. And uh, what happened was that Wasserman and Stewart came up with this idea, which was radical at the time, for him to get a percentage of the profits. And it was on this movie. And he was the first actor to do that. Hmm. But when he made the deal with Universal, not only did he get a salary, but he also said, I get a percentage of the profit. And he made a fortune out of this movie because it was a huge hit. And after that, every other actor, big actor said, hey, I want what Stewart got. You know, So um, that, changed the, that changed the business. In terms of the characterization of this movie, right, look at Shirley Winter. Um, you really get to really sympathize and emphasize with her during this picture. She's gone for, I mean, she's out of sight. She appears in the beginning. She's out of sight for half the movie, but when she comes back, you really get to know who she is. Yeah. And this relationship she has with a guy who turns out to be not the greatest guy in the world. And she, she has it rough. I mean, she gets not physically abused, but she gets sort of emotionally abused by these bad guys. And um, at the end, when you see her with Jimmy Stewart, they're justified. You want to see them together because they have been, both of them have been through the ring. Um, there is also the guy Millard, Millard Mitchell, who played Jimmy Stewart's best friend. He doesn't seem like much. He seems like this guy who just hangs along with him. But at the end of the movie, or towards the end, you realize he's a true friend. He's a really true, devoted friend to Jimmy Stewart. That's the only friend he really has in life. Mm-hmm. These characters are really layered, and they're really beautiful. Uh, Dan Durier 
makes an incredible in, uh, uh, entrance. Boy, he makes an entrance in this movie. And even though he's not in the film for very long, he's, he's well, Dead Dreyer always played great villains. And this is one of his the best villains he ever played in the film. So good in yeah, this. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I uh, I did not expect to be able. I thought this one I wasn't able to get it from the library in time, and I'm like, well, I've seen it, so I'll be able to talk about it a little bit, but I won't get to rewatch it for this episode. And then I just happened to check the Gene Siskel calendar, and I'm like, oh, today, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had to run out and rewatch it, and it is it is just absolutely astounding movie. Yeah, apparently it was supposed to be directed by Fritz Lang. Wow, that would have been interesting. Huh. But I'm no, glad. really, yeah. Well, um, lucky, yeah, Maybe. <laughs> right. No, this is great. Um, so I think that about wraps things up. Do we want to do our top three? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you go ahead and start, Jim. Well, I think I'm going to go with uh, Man of the West for number three, and then uh, Raw Deal, number two. And my number one is Winchester 73. I can't wait to watch this on the big screen tomorrow night. All right. Uh, my number three uh, would be Raw Deal. My number two is Winchester 73, and my number one is uh, Border Incident. Well, I better see that then. Okay. Uh, I'll take one from each period. For cool. number three, I'll take Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, from his middle period, boy, there's so many. I don't know which one to pick. Well, I'll just go with what I just saw. I'll go with Winchester 73. And for his early period, I would take... Oh, wow. Once again, I'm stuck. Um, I'll go with T-Men. T-Men is terrific. We didn't talk at length about T-Men, but that is a film. Yeah, T-Men has one of the great opening shots where we just see uh, Charles McGraw's face come out from the darkness. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that one, you know? That's a good choice. Um, but there's so many great films he made. You know, I didn't get a chance to talk about Serenade, his really bizarre uh, movie with Mario Lanza based on a very disturbing James A.K. novel. Though it was, of course, reworked for the movies, the, the, the essential theme and spirit of the book is definitely in that movie, without question. Yeah, and I have, I, have um, a, I, have a, I have a fondness. It's not a great movie, but I liked Side Street. I enjoyed it, and I, I think it is just the pairing of Farley Granger and Kathy O'Donnell again, because They Live by Night is one of my top ten favorite movies ever. Uh, so I think just the fact that they were in this movie together, although Kathy O'Donnell's barely in it, I still really enjoyed it. I still got a kick out of it. I mean, Farley Granger is just kind of like one of those dopes, and he pl- he does that really well in this. All all the decisions, all the decisions he makes are so mm-hmm. bad. <laughs> and I, I would also say that uh, we didn't really talk much about it, but the Tall Target is an yeah. absolutely terrific. It's oh a, yeah, it's a, oh yeah. It's basically a throwback. It's half you know uh, the kind of thriller he was man on the run thriller he was making at, at Poverty Row, but then it's also kind of half Alfred Hitchcock, and it's just a terrific movie. Yeah, that's another great one yeah, too. Yeah, but Dick Powell. Dick yeah. and um, and a really interesting early role by Ruby D. I was about to mention right. Ruby D is a nerd, yes. and it's, it's who, a- has, who has one of the best lines. Once again, this is George Schwery, where she basically he plays a Pekinian detective who finds out that there's an assassination attempt against Lincoln, one of the assassinations, which is true. There was a plot to kill Lincoln assassination, and she plays a slave to a woman uh, on the train, and there's and she helps out. Uh, Dick Powell, and when her slave owner finds out, the, the woman says, "Well, we were friends and everything." And Ruby D says, "We were never friends." Yeah, mm. there is. I a- was 
if you look at right. if you, you know if you look at the history yeah. of you know black actors in early Hollywood, you know when you hear that they're playing a slave, you 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 kind of like you can sort of in advance go, oh boy, this is maybe going to you know not age well or whatever. But Ruby D is so good in that movie, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. No, those are all good, and we're we'll definitely come back. And if we ever watch any more Anthony Mann movies, we'll we'll bring them up on the show. Um, Sergio, where can we find more of you on the interwebs? I know you're kind of all over well, the place. Well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, Sergio Mim. I'm on Instagram. Sergio Mim. I'm not on Twitter anymore because I was banned. Ooh. Permanently. What happened? After that, after, after that tweet I wrote about Richard Jewell, the movie, um, to a fellow film critic of ours, and um, if you want to know what I said, I said that the movie, Richard Jewell, was a movie made for Trumpers. It's, it's the movie, the basic message of the movie is pity the poor, obese, redneck doofus who is a victim of government overreach by the FBI and fake news uh, uh, represented by a female whore reporter because the character in the movie yep. that Oliver uh, that Olivia Wilde plays sleeps around to get information. It's an old sexist trope. Absolutely. Right? Uh, the permanently <laughs> for that. Unbelievable. Yeah, I appeal, they still banned me. And I said, well, you have Nazis and racists and even Donald Trump posting anything they want to. You ban me for that. Yeah, wow. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And you're also a regular on uh, on Movie Madness uh, over at the Nell oh, Point yeah, Network. Movie Madness. Eric uh, and I got a t- tape, a new one this week, I guess. We haven't done one in about two weeks. Um, uh, and also, he's been on my radio show. He should be posting up soon. Um, he talked about the, what he saw. Oops. Sorry, I'm talking to the cat here. Um, he, uh, he should be talking about... Um, uh, he talked about uh, Sundance. What he saw Sundance this year. Oh, right, right. And that should be up this week. Uh, he was on my radio show, and he spent two hours talking about Sundance. So um, check that out. And also, we still do DVD reviews um, on uh, the Movie Madness. And uh, what else can you find me? Uh, on your wanted poster at the post office? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I, I, I got to say that... Uh I, I'm I'm glad that even if it's monthly that we get to hear more of uh of my of my great friends and co host Patrick Rapole's thoughts on film. And uh I'm very grateful for that and very excited for, you know, however long we go. But uh where else can we find your thoughts on film in general, Patrick? I think there's only one place. I write every I write about every movie I see on Letterboxd. Sometimes I don't have energy to write much more than three words, but I do write about it. So if you go to <laughs> Letterbox.com slash Patrick Rapole, you will find me. As you will find me at Letterbox at Now Playing Jim. Uh, sometimes I'm on Twitter, reluctantly. Sometimes I'm on Facebook, reluctantly. Sometimes I'm on Instagram, reluctantly. Uh, <laughs> all these places that you're s- are evil, but yet I'm still there because I want to promote great podcast content uh, from the Now Playing Network, where you can find uh, links to this show and many other great podcasts. And uh, again, we're so happy that you came back on the show. We'll definitely have you on again in the future. Uh, another old director, yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. 
And you can send us an email at... Is it Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com? You're right. Okay, I got it right. It's, Absolutely. I guess those old instincts kick back in. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next month with uh, a very interesting director that we'll be talking about, uh, Guy Madden, with guest Dave Canfield. We'll see you then. Thank you so much, and good night. Bye. Woohoo!